everyone. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasberry. This is Frank. And uh, this week we are going to be covering the top five modern westerns. Um, before we get into it, I'll just just explain quickly. I, I've kind of arbitrarily picked 1990 as um, the the cutoff for what is modern, 90 to the present. Um, uh, it seemed to work out fairly well. The more I thought about it, though, uh, and really I only chose that just so you could, Frank, if you wanted to include uh, Unforgiven, like in that list, since it kind of um, is outside. Um, and Maverick. And shit, yes, and Maverick. Um, uh, I was going to make a quickly down under joke, but I think that's 1989. But. Um, so uh, why it seemed to work out, at least for me anyway, is because really it is like the 90s and the 2000s and even the 2010s are, I think, pretty markedly different from prior generations. Do you agree? Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me like the more I thought about it, there's, <clears throat> there's three different eras of... There's one movie on this <clears throat> list that falls more into what a traditional Western, in terms of like instruction... Sure, and I agree with that, yeah. Um... Just structure in the way that it presents the characters. Yeah, but for the most part, they have more, I don't know, indie sensibility to them, I guess. Sure. Maybe not even indie right. might not be right, but they're definitely not traditional in the sense of like, what you would think of as like, you know, the Searchers or the Man With No Name series from the sure. or yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff from that time that really follows like a very traditional, Yeah. you know. And I think that's what you have. Is I think you have the traditional Westerns of the 30s through the probably 50s, 60s, the, the John Ford movies, right. the John Wayne movies, and then you have more of the spaghetti western types, um, you know, which start adding a little bit more moral complexity, I think, sure. to things, and a little bit more grime. And in this modern era, it seems to me that uh, a lot more violence. <clears throat> more violence and more... More graphic violence, I should more say. More interest in the idea that... It's not just, like, the white hats and the black hats as, as much as it is, like, that there is, like, complex characterization in a lot of these mm -hmm. movies. And even in movies we didn't include on this list where it's it's more about examining, you know, the, the complex, like, societal issues of is a man with a gun, like, you know, judge, jury, and executioner in regards to, like, meeting out justice or... Getting revenge or whatever, so, and also directed by a caliber of director that I think is much higher than a lot of the westerns from like the heyday of westerns. Sure. Um, what are your? I, I think we touched upon this in our introduction that we recorded. Um, but what are your general feelings towards westerns? I mean, I love westerns. Yeah. It's one of my favorite. Maybe in terms of like strict like genre films, if I'm you know like capsulizing them or whatever. Um, After Horror, probably my second favorite genre of movie is Western. Um, I love the setting of Westerns. I love the the idea of, like, you know, just abject freedom, being able to, like, get on a horse and not that I would ever want to ride a horse, but <laughs> the idea of getting on a horse and, like, going from one place to another and finding your fortune. And I don't know. I think there's a lot of... um. I... I think it's interesting that every like decade or so you get like a like Hollywood revisits westerns and people become interested in the old west again. 
And I think that, you know, there's a lot of manifest destiny that falls into, like, the, just the idea of, like, you know, the white man, like, stretching his arms across the continent and people, like, being criminals and then becoming, like, upstanding citizens with still having a criminal past. And I think there's a lot of, you know, racial questions that come into a number of these movies and how people treat like the indigenous population of areas. And I don't know, there's, there's a lot of things you can do in a Western as a, with, with just the basic, whatever, like backdrop of a Western, a lot of really complex storytelling that can happen. And I think that there's directors that have done it really well, like over, you know, the entire history of cinema. Yeah. And I, we talked about this a little bit, I guess last night, maybe like, you know, um, but I see that there's like the, definitely crossover between like my great love which is crime film and noir and stuff like that and westerns like sure. it seems they go like at times hand in hand but it definitely goes more along the lines of these modern westerns and what they do that kind of like you know complex characterizations you were talking about like you know the fact that like things are gray the um it's the line that chandler had about um um What's her face that wrote the British uh, Who Done It? So Agatha Christie about uh, taking the you know uh, you know taking the body out of the um, you know uh, Greek urn and putting it back in the alley where it belongs. It's like that. What's that's what it feels like. These movies do right. compared to the things I don't like, which are you know not to say there aren't good movies there, but the things like John Wayne movies, like which I'm not a fan of, like at all. Even the John Wayne mm. movies have those elements, they just whitewash those elements and make them aside from the searchers and maybe the man who shot Liberty Balance, most of John Wayne's movies are about these are the good guys and these are the bad guys and the good guys are going to win out because they have, you know, right on their side. Um, which is not very interesting anymore. Like, not to say that some of those movies can't still be good. <clears throat> you know, like I still enjoy Stagecoach. I think it's a good movie. Um, but it's just not as interesting from the standpoint of like, what questions does it raise? What does it make you think about in terms of like the human condition in general? You know, but Westerns are typically, they're about, they're about revenge. A lot of the time they're mm -hmm. about finding something that was lost or retrieving someone that was kidnapped. I mean, there's not a whole lot of like large variety in the plot of a Western, you know, it's like there's caper movies, heist movies you know, movies about, like, revenge for massacres and whatnot. Sure. Um, so they do kind of fall in similar to what noir does, but <clears throat> up until more recent times, you know, Westerns were mostly, the main stars were stoic, they weren't talkative, you know, they do more with their actions than their words. Um, but as, you know, like, cinema's progressed and people have, like, again, found Westerns again, and I kind of, like, we, we, we talked about this off-air, but we kind of attributed it to Deadwood somewhat, is there's almost like a Shakespearean quality now to the way that people speak mm -hmm. in Westerns, where there's these, I don't know how true it is, but these people that were, you know, criminals and bushwhackers and... Well, from, from my little bit of reading of letters from the time period and those kind of things, it does feel accurate. Yeah. I'm not saying that it is 100% accurate, but it feels very accurate. Um, 
that kind of stylized language. And even though we don't talk about it here, just because this is about like movies, you know, Deadwood is the prime example of what like almost like the perfect modern western is in terms of mm-hmm. characterization and dialogue and plot and the way that the way that that TV show was directed. I mean, there's a lot of really fantastic things in there that definitely pay homage to the old west in terms of like older cinema, but also right. have this modernization and you know it feels like vital and important when you're watching. Right. Um, what movies, uh, didn't make this list? Um, you know, I thought about, um, well, No Country for Old Men, um, as, like, a true modern Western. Uh, there's also The Three Burials of Malchiatus Estrada, which is also a, a true, like, modern Western. Um, the 310 to Yuma remake, I, I think is pretty decent. Um, the Magnificent Seven remake, I think is pretty decent. Not on this list. Uh, there's a couple of movies that I think people probably would expect um, in uh, Quentin Tarantino's Django movie and Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight movie, and I hate those movies, so they are not on this list. Uh-huh. Um, I don't actually hate Django. I just think Django's like 40 minutes too long. I like actively dislike Hateful Eight. Um, I think it's a really bad movie for a lot of reasons. Um, but they're both Westerns. One that was really close, and I... I only left it off just because I think it, like, drags in the middle, um, is, I'm going to get this name wrong, the coward Robert Ford who shot Jesse James or whatever, <laughs> um, the Brad Pitt, Jesse James movie, uh, which has some really fantastic performances, some really great cinematography, but again, it's just, like, it, it's just right off, right, right on the cusp of, like, being, yeah. what, do you know what the actual title of that movie is? The assassination of Jesse James by, by the, the coward, coward Robert, Robert Ford. Ford. Yeah. And there, there's a lot of words. Sure, that. sure. Um, but that's a really good movie, too. Um, and also, the other thing, and we again, we talked about this off air, is I actually really considered putting Serenity on this list, mm-hmm. the Firefly movie, um, because I really think that that's the truest like space western. Um, but it's a, a little bit too much of a stretch, and I kind of feel like it's pandering to put it on there. Uh, there's a couple of Asian movies, too. There's... Um, I'm not going to say this right either. Suzuki Western Django, which is like a Django movie set in like Japan. And then there's The Good, The Bad, and The Weird, which is a Korean Western, I think, which is really good. Um, And both of them are like worth seeing. And they also could have made the list because I like them a lot. But again, like there are elements that are just enough outside of like the tradition of tradition, what I consider like a traditional Western that I didn't want to include. When was the last time you were on a horse? 1989, 1990, somewhere around there. I've been on a horse, man. I, so have I, but I think you got me beat. Like, yeah. I think mine was a much younger age. <clears throat> Just odd, because we live around a place that has... I live next to two Right, ones, right, right. For the majority of my life, yeah. so I don't know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I never, like, I, I love, like, the horses in movies and, like, mm-hmm. the horses a mode of transport in a Western. Mm-hmm. I have no, like, interest in horses, necessarily. Like, I've never gotten the majesty of a horse when I've been in his presence because they just kind of smell and they're sort of scary and but, I don't know. I'm Yeah, it's like when I, the last time I was around a horse was a few years ago, like, like right next to him, petting him and that kind of stuff. And, um... They're kind of scary in their size and their power. Like right, I, that I, I kill you. yeah. I mean, I'm uncomfortable around farms anyway. Like, you know, like farm Plus, life. I'm, I'm but... fat. And I ain't climbing on a bunch of horse. 
<clears throat> I mean, no one either. Okay. Um, you ready to jump in? Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, before we jump in real quick, I just wanted to say um, that uh, if anybody has any ideas for a list, feel free to email us at twoguys5movies at gmail.com. That's the number two and five, twoguys5movies at gmail.com. Uh, you can also follow us on our Facebook page. Uh, just so you know, for the next month, uh, next week we'll, we will be doing a third man series with our friend Orion Wellmaker, and he will be um, on to discuss the best of Alfred Hitchcock. Um, and then at the last week of the month, um, we were planning on doing the top five the horror movies of the 1980s. Um, and as... Um, Frank started going through the movies, he realized that um, there's a considerable amount of movies in the 1980s. So what we've decided to do is start our first uh, long-term you know, series, which is um, we're going to cover every year of the 1980s for the next 10 months, uh, which will end, I guess, in uh, October, um, which I guess is appropriate. Um, so we'll be covering um, just the year 1980 at the end of the month. Um, uh, best horror B movies in 1980 and then in February we'll be doing 1981, March 1982 and so on. Um, so that gives us a little preview of what we're going to be doing uh, coming up here for the next month or so. Um, then we got some other things in store for February. Okay, so Frank, first movie, number five on your list is uh, Tombstone from 1993, directed by George Cosmatis, uh, uh, stars Russell Crowe, Val Kilmer, Sam Elliott, Powers Booth, Michael Bean, Dana Delaney, and I'm going to stop there because I could read another 15 names probably that are well known. Uh, has a 73% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 94% from audiences. So you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much. Um, so, I mean, it's the story of the Arps uh, trying to move into Tombstone to start a life of, like, legitimacy, kind of, stop being, like, lawmen, um, and open up a saloon and gambling house. Um, they sort of run afoul of this group, uh, led by Powers Booth, um, called the Cowboys, who are rancheros and desperados, basically, and kind of have this above-the-law, like, air of lawlessness that they bring, um, Russell plays, Kurt Russell plays wider, Initially hesitant to get back into being a lawman um, in order to deal with the Cowboys. He just kind of wants to like live his life, but is eventually pressured into it after there's a, the gunfight at the OK Brown. Um, it's him, his two brothers, Morgan and Virgil, and then uh, Doc Holliday, played by Val Kilmer. Um, basically become the law and take the fight to the Cowboys. Uh, there's some stuff where Virgil and I think... Morgan is killed and Virgil is seriously wounded or vice versa. Um, yeah, that's right. But then, like, Wider, you know, murders the leader of the Cowboys and takes out a decent amount of them. <clears throat> and then there's a final showdown uh, between Doc Holliday. Well, it's supposed to be between Russell and the leader, the new leader of the Cowboys, uh, Ringo, but ends up being, like, a pretty good scene between Doc Holliday and, and Ringo. Um, and that's it. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward plot. Really, it's... Um, Feels like a pretty long movie. How long is it? Like two hours and it was like I want to say it was about two hours, five minutes maybe. Yeah. Um. Again, pretty straightforward. Uh, it's really the most traditional western on this list. Mm-hmm. 
in the sense of the reluctant lawman being drawn into the fight, but he still is like the most badass, whatever, like gun gunfighter. Um, the bad guys are bad guys. The good guys are good guys. The murkiest distinction maybe is the Doc Holliday character because he's a card sharp and a, a drunk and, you know, he's tubercular or whatever. Um, but still, like, he's a good guy. Like, he's never portrayed as even, like, maybe an anti-hero. Like, he's always a hero of the movie. <clears throat> maybe the most interesting character in the movie, honestly. Like, generally my favorite performance. Right. Um, some really memorable scenes. Um, the direction isn't anything special necessarily. Like it's just, it's competently directed. Um, honestly, I don't know who directed it. George, George Cosmatos. Yeah. Um, competently directed, you know, it's, it, well, the, just so you know, uh, it was the screenwriter, Kevin Jari that started directing that movie and, um, it was his first actual directing job um, after he wrote it, and uh, he kind of lost control of the movie mm-hmm. in the sense of he wasn't getting establishing shots. He just wasn't get, doing what he needed to be doing in the first couple weeks, and he was replaced. And they brought in this George Cosmatos, um, uh, who I think worked on a bunch of spaghetti westerns, and over in Italy and he ended up coming over and directing the movie yeah. and there was a little bit of pushback because friends, I guess people were friends with Jari. Um, and, um, uh, Michael Bean, I guess, threatened to walk off the set and, but, uh, I guess, uh, ultimately though, everybody came to really love the guy a lot and he ended up, um, Kind of getting things in terms of budget, like you know, under yeah. under control, and um, apparently Russell and him sat down and cut down the movie. It was supposed to be something like three some hours, um, which is the mistake Kevin Costner right. um, made um, over. And the, the the they came out the same year, right? I think this movie and or like think within Earth a year, is, maybe ninety four. I think Wider is a little later. Yeah, like ninety four is like yeah. a year later. But um, I feel like I was in high school and wider. You know? Yeah, and that and that movie is like three hours, if I remember so correctly. Like, yeah. So Russell and the director ended up, I guess, apparently cutting down the script down to a much more functional, like two hours. And um, uh, so yeah, so there is a really complicated production um on all of this. But apparently, everybody like had really great things to say about the director in the end, and he he really. Create a positive I mean, it's, set. It's again, it's it's a very competently filmed movie. Yeah. You know, you you always understand what's happening mm-hmm. when it's happening. There's yeah. never any, and it's filmed in a very traditional Hollywood style. Like, there's not a lot of quick cuts. There's not a lot of, right. you know, it's it's just it's 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 establishing shots. It's very like you know medium medium range shots where you see all the action. Um, it, he he films the action relatively well. Like. Even in the more chaotic scenes, like the gunfight at the OK Corral, <clears throat> you definitely understand like what's happening in those scenes. I mean, I don't know if that's really a compliment, but no, yeah, I... it's it. The direction doesn't get in the way of what's most important in that movie, which is the main characters and the dialogue, mm-hmm. and just generally like seeing justice be meted out to these criminals. Yeah, and again, the criminals are never it, it's. It's weird because, like, every single one of these other movies, there's 
certain elements, like certain gradations in terms of like who's the hero, who's the villain, you know, who's in the right in like any circumstance in the movies. But in this one, you never have to question that Curly Bob or you know Ringo are bad guys. Right, like they're always bad guys, and you never question. Even though Wyatt Earp is kind of like a gruff man. Like, Russell, the way he plays him, you never question that he's, like, a just lawman, you know, so, I don't know, but, um, the thing I, the thing I love the most about this movie, again, is, you know, it is Kurt Russell, and it's Val Kilmer, <clears throat> and Powers Booth, and Michael Bean, you know, um, all the people that play, like, the major roles in this movie do an excellent job, um, some really memorable dialogue, I think, and probably some of the most quoted, like, lines in terms of especially um, Doc Holliday's character. Yeah. Uh, with the, I'm, I'm your Huckleberry or whatever. Um, right. Which, when I was growing up, like, that was something that people said. Sure. Constantly. Yeah. Um, beautiful setting, you know. I mean, I, I love the Old West setting mm-hmm. anyway. But really, really well filmed in terms of, like, cinematography, where it's, yeah. like, the countryside is expansive and lush and beautiful. Agreed. And, and I think they filmed a lot on, in Arizona, Actually, too. So, yeah, I, yeah. Um, the gunfight when they're in the river is especially well done. Uh-huh. I mean, that's a really good scene. Um, Holiday's final duel with Ringo um, in the stand of trees has this like really almost like Kurosawa esque like feel to it yeah. of like two like. Samurai. I thought that was a really interesting choice. When you think of the West, you don't think of the woods like that. Right. You think of the thoroughfare, you think of, you know... But again, um, I'm, I'm wondering... You think of the mountains or the ridges, and it's like, I, I thought that was a really interesting choice to have, like, the final duel. Yeah, I'm wondering if that it was a choice to almost, like, pay homage to those, like, samurai films. Yeah. Um, since Kurosawa, like, pulled so much from, like, that... It, right. It contributed a lot to, like, the westerns in the 60s, and also was inspired by westerns in a lot of ways, but that maybe having that be, like, almost, like, the duel between these two, like, Master, whatever, right? Yeah. Duelists, um, although obviously Holiday like easily comes out, even though yeah. he's dying of tuberculosis at the time. Um, but yeah, it's it. Not a whole lot really to discuss about the movie because again, I don't know that there's much complexity to the characterization that you really need to talk about. <clears throat> um, even the whole like implied infant or like. I don't know, like, the feeling of, like, wanting infidelity on Wyatt Earp's part is because his wife is, whatever, like, a laudanomatic, and mm. um, you sort of feel bad for him, like, so even though, um, like, she's she's shown to be in the wrong, basically. Um, so even that, which could have been, like, morally complex, like, Deadwood does the same thing, and it's really, like, morally complex. Like, this, it just makes it, like, a clear cut, like, well... She's the addict. She's wrong, so he's okay. What did you think of the way that they portrayed? Because that that's different. That, that's the one thing I would say is a little different in terms of um, this movie compared to traditional westerns is the way they portrayed the camera character's name, the Dana Delaney character, right. yeah. of being this kind of like free spirit, like who doesn't mind, like you know, just kind of going from town to town and like you know having sex with whoever she wants and. You know, this kind of, like, almost, like, early hippie, almost, it seems, like, you know... Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that character exists in, like, the Westerns of the 60s, sometimes. Um, I don't know, I think... I think that it was probably difficult 
to make a movie where you didn't have a strong female character if you wanted to have like any kind of female audience, maybe. And I think that I don't know. I mean, it's a fine character. Like I, I like her performance in the movie. Yeah. Um, I thought she just disappeared most of the time. Like I didn't really care about that subplot she like, at all. She, she's like, there to be pretty. She's yeah. there to like have a couple quippy lines to sort of play off of Doc Holliday and kind of have this feeling of like doomed romance between the two of them and also offer like this feeling of like possibility for the future for Wyatt. Um, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't really feel any kind of way about it. Like, I think it's just, I think it's just how movies were written at the time and continue to be written today where they feel like they have to have like a strong female character just to kind of like draw in that demographic. Um, I, I think the only thing, other thing I have in my notes about this movie is I think that um, you talked about the setting and stuff, which I I agree with. I, I also thought that um, they took pretty great pains to create. I think a like to recreate like or try to recreate the West like as it's still in that traditional mold, but I think with the mustaches and the you know, the guns and, like, you know, the sets themselves and stuff like that. I think they took great pains to try to, like, really make it feel like the West. And I think it does a pretty successful job of feeling like what you see in pictures of the realistic West. It, it um, makes one of the, I don't know if complaint is the right word, but one of the things you'll notice if you watch a lot of Westerns from, you know, the 60s and 70s is that you get the impression that every town was, like, seven buildings. And even though there's always a lot of townspeople, there's it's always very small. And a lot of especially a lot of like the spaghetti westerns, they, they always feel like sets. It doesn't feel like you're actually like yeah. looking. And Tombstone in this this setting feels like a living town. Like it right. feels like a real place yeah. that um you know, that you act like like you said, you actually are kind of seeing like a glimpse back to that time. So yeah, I mean I and the, the costuming is great. You know, I'm a pretty big fan. Like, I would never wear a cowboy hat in real life, but I'm a pretty big fan of, like, that look um, in terms of, like, how it comes off cinematically and aesthetically on the mm-hmm. screen. Um, and they do a really good job, especially Holiday always looks really, like, classy and debonair. And right. Has that, like, rakish, you know, like, swashbuckler look to the way he dresses mm-hmm. and stuff. And it's, um, I don't know. It's a very enjoyable movie. <coughs> I think that it still is, like, eminently watchable today. Um, I've probably seen Tombstone, like, four or five times in my life. Um, and I enjoy it every time I see it. Like, there's never anything where I think, like, man, this movie needs to hurry up or, you know, like, oh, I don't know why they included this. Like, it's not, there's no embarrassing part. No, I agree with that. To Tombstone, you know, where yeah. a lot of times when you go back from a nostalgic perspective and watch stuff that you enjoyed when you were younger, you kind of cringe a little bit at stuff that you sort of, enjoyed or maybe like glossed over but i don't think that exists here i think it's um i think it's a pretty modern movie in that respect and that it respects its characters and it respects you know it it just is very clear cut this is what's happening it takes you from point a to point b fluidly and it's satisfying at the end yeah um so going back to the idea of this being the most traditional um Stephen Holden of the New York Times uh, kind of agrees, but he says that um, freighted with all of the psychological and sociological baggage, uh, Tombstone is really two movies loosely strewn together, sewn together. Sorry, uh, one is the conventional western, the other is the self-consciously digressive meditation on the iconic 
iconography of Hollywood Westerns. The traditional archetype triumphs over the modernist conventions, but grafted onto this framework, the film's meditative aspects are generally too self-conscious to fit comfortably. Especially when the movie tries to imagine a more enlightened role for women in the West, the screenplay begins to strain. Um, so he sees that the movie is trying to do two different things at once. It's trying to be traditional, but also trying to lay on top of the traditional um, some sort of view on those uh, older movies and thinks that when they try to kind of almost like maybe modernize things too much for the context, that it starts to fall apart a little bit. I just don't, I mean, I don't, I don't see, unless you take the Maddie character, the David Delaney character, mm -hmm. and really try to force like some kind of ideology onto her inclusion, aside from the fact that it just is, mm -hmm whatever, like, aiming for a demographic, like, yeah. I don't know, I don't see it. Yeah. I, I really see no subtlety or complexity to any of the plot or the way that anything is presented. I mean, because if, if you made, like, Curly Bob or Ringo sympathetic somehow, mm -hmm. or they were just victims of circumstance, you know, and that, that there's, we'll, we'll talk about that in several of the sure. movies where... You know, directors do try and do that with people that are traditional villains, and it is morally complex. Neither of those characters, and those are really the two main like, villains of the movie, and other members of the Cowboys who are also like portrayed as villains. Like, there's no moral complexity. Like, it's it, it's very much this is a bad man, this is a good man, this good man is justified in killing this bad man, and that's what happens. I mean, I don't know. Um, I told you last night. Um. But I hate doing these modern uh, movies sometimes, like reading the reviews of them. Mm -hmm. um, and th that's another, this is one of those examples. There's going to be a plenty of more as we go through here. But um, one of the reasons that I, I hate reading the reviews of more modern movies is because um, uh, politicizing that goes on inside reviewing starting, it seems, in the 90s and just gets worse today. Um, becomes more prevalent yeah. where when we go through the reviews typically we don't have a lot of that kind of we have it among ourselves but right. we don't really deal with critics a lot necessarily with a lot of sociological or um, you know uh, political commentary necessarily but as as we creep more into the 90s and the 2000s right. well, we have yeah. a lot more of that and like we, we've talked about this on air and off air and like yeah. i always think of it as agenda reviews where someone has a preconceived notion of a point they want to get to and we'll take facets of a movie to fit that without dealing with other facets of the movie. But I mean, I I think you always have to look at the whole cloth of anything. And this movie is inherently not about anything right. but being like a story of something that actually happened. And like an epic revision, revisionist, you know, whatever. I don't know. Like overarching view of these characters that are real life historical figures that have become like almost iconic characters because of film and because of television and whatnot so yeah um he the, the other main criticism of this movie oddly is um is the doc holiday character really yeah um uh where most people love it um and ebert actually didn't um review this um because I can't remember. Something happened, and it was at the very end of the year. It came out, I think, on Christmas Eve, this movie. And him and Siskel somehow didn't – there was no advanced screening. That's what it was. 
So they didn't end up reviewing it, and um, he has mentioned it in other reviews later, and he has a very favorable impression of the movie overall. There, no star rating, but it sounds probably like a three, three and a half star right. or something. Um, so, but um, uh, but the reason he ended up making sure he won and saw it um, was because he heard other reviewers raving about Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday. Um, so I was a little surprised when I started reading some of these reviews and negative ones. And that was a pretty steady um, complaint um, about him. And um, again, Holden from the New York Times um, <clears throat> says it goes to great lengths to portray Doc as a prefigurement of the dissolute modern poet of frontier era Jim, <clears throat> Jim Morrison. In one scene, the character flourishes Latin phrases, and another he bangs out a part of the Chopin Nocturne. On the attitude piano, uh, Kilmer, who gave an uncanny performance as Morrison and the Doors, can be terrific at this sort of thing, but in Tombstone, a performance that aims to chew all the scenery in sight seems slightly mannered. Um, and then Owen Gleiberman, which I'm sure you probably remember from the 90s from Entertainment Weekly, um, uh, said that he thought that the character was unrealistic and absurd because he was filled with so many cliches. Um, and that's just kind of too quick ones, but it's like a lot of people seem to think that the way that they portrayed Doc Holliday and then the way that Kilmer acted out that role seemed to be somewhat ridiculous given the rest of the film. Like, he seemed out of place in some way. I don't know. I mean, they just, they play him as a... Uh, I don't, like, he's, he's, he's a gentleman mm -hmm. love, like, knowledge and letters who also happens to be like an ace card sharp and the best like gunman in the world. I, I don't know. Like he's again, it's not there's no characterization there. He's just a character. Right. To borrow from right. you know pulp fiction. Mm -hmm. Like there's no complexity to it. He just he's playing that role. I mean I I think it's the best performance in the movie, honestly. I think yeah, he's right. the most watchable part of the movie. In a movie that's filled with pretty good performances, and I think that he's got the best lines and yeah. you know spinning the tin cup and the thing on the piano and yeah. By, in contrast, there. Holden thinks that Russell carries the movie, like even because he doesn't like the holiday character quite as much. He thinks it's a lot of scenery chewing. He he says that it's Russell that carries it, and I don't know if I agree with that. I I think Russell does a good job, but Russell definitely plays a traditional yeah stoic yeah. you know. Yeah. Frontiersman character sure. and Doc Holliday lends this weird, almost like carny vibe, mm -hmm. you know. That again, like when you watch Deadwood, <clears throat> like they do that to great effect with a lot of characters in that. Especially like even like Al Swearingen has right. elements of that in it, sure. in the sense that he's a guy that can talk to you about these really high-minded ideals and speak other languages and also shoot you in the gut from under the table. Right. I mean, that's sure. it's just it's. It's a very romanticized version of mm -hmm. a character, but that's what the movie's about, is romanticizing sure. those events. Okay. So. All right. That's enough. Uh, I just want to go through those. Because uh, it, it was so prevalent, I wanted to yeah, get it's through. It's I'm really surprised that anybody would complain about Yeah. That. Okay. Moving on to number four on the list is 1992's Unforgiven, directed by Clint Eastwood, starring Clint Eastwood, and also Gene Hackman, Morgan Freeman, Richard Harris, Saul Rubinick. Has a 96% from critics on uh, Rotten Tomatoes and 93% from audiences. 
Do you want to go ahead and explain a little bit about uh, William Money and uh, yeah. this movie? Uh, so Eastwood plays William Money, who's a um, old retired outlaw uh, living in where is it, Kentucky or Kansas or somewhere, uh, with his two children, uh, widowed for three years by this woman who kind of changed him from being like a violent criminal to being a family man. Um, is approached by the nephew of one of his former like criminal gang compatriots with the idea that um, there's these prostitutes, one of whom was cut up by a cowboy in this town. Uh, the prostitutes have offered a thousand dollar reward for anyone who will come and kill the two cowboys because they don't feel like uh, little Bill, the sheriff of the town's justice was meted out properly. Um, basically the cowboys mutilate this girl's face and they get away with nothing. They're basically just released on their own recognizance for the price of, like, five horses. Um, initially hesitant, like, 30 seconds later, he decides he's going to do it. And then goes to catch the kid uh, to go and kill these two cowboys. Picks up Morgan Freeman on the way, who's also a former, you know, part of his former gang. Um, they seem that they had a close relationship in the past. Um... And basically, I don't know, I mean, he catches them, or they eventually kill the two. Morgan Freeman loses his nerve and wants to leave and is caught by Little Bill's people and is end up getting killed, and then Clint Eastwood, like, murders, like, three-quarters of a town, I guess. Yeah. It's a lot of people. Know. He kills a lot of people. Yeah. He kills pretty much the entire law enforcement of that. Oh, I think all the law enforcement of that town. Yeah, none of them are left alive. Um, it's, it's, it's a pretty simple plot. I mean, the idea is just that they're going to go collect this reward and then one of his, you know, one of his best friends dies and he gets revenge and that's it. Um, I personally feel like it's an interesting meditation on the idea of these, these outlaws and these, like, whatever, like violent men of the old West, like the, the, the mythic proportions that people built them up to, um, by word of mouth stories and by newspaper and just like over the course of time where we like have these idealized versions of these people. Like, you know, you think about somebody like Jesse James or Billy the Kid, and there's a lot of romanization that goes into these characters, Doc Holliday, like we just talked about. And I think it's kind of an examination of how none of those things are really true and how these men are just men and that a violent man committing violent acts is just that like there's no real glory to it um and that that theme is certainly physically present in the film with the Saul Rubinick character right. who's a writer following English Bill? English Bob English Bob mm -hmm. Um, little Bill in English Bob. Little like, Bill English yeah, Bob. and as a uh, English Bob around, and then he finds out that English Bob is um, making up stories. Maybe making up stories. So, in, in my opinion, hold on. So he's making. It seems like he might be making up stories, and then once English Bob gets kicked out of town, Little Bill kind of like starts talking to the writer and and also tell, becomes enamored with the idea of telling his tell, stories. Right. right, and it's like so there there is that theme present in it of these ideas that writers particularly taking these stories and making people into mythic figures. So what what you just talked about I think is 
the most important part of the movie, like beyond the all the plot lines. And I mean, Clint Eastwood, the character that of of Will Money, is written in a way where he's very repentant over the things he's done. He doesn't want to be the man he was in the past. He hasn't drank in like eleven years. He hasn't killed a man in eleven years. Consequently, he wants to be a good person. And that's repeated over and over and over throughout the course of the movie. But I think the most important part of the movie is the idea that you see English Bob perform these acts of, like, gunplay that are impressive. Like, you actually see him do it. And English Bob is beaten because he's surrounded by six men with rifles pointed at his head and then beaten up by a guy who's basically a bully in Little Bill. Like, Little Bill doesn't outdraw him. It's not a traditional, like, duel where he's, like, he bests him in one-on-one combat. He overpowers him with, you know, a posse of guys and then beats the shit out of him and then basically just humiliates him and kicks him out of town. And... And steals his writer. Yeah, steals his writer and then does the same thing that he's criticizing English Bob for doing, which is, like, embellishing his own tales. And at the end of the movie... You know, when he's, when there's the reckoning where Eastwood comes back in to basically murder everyone, <clears throat> Little Bill does absolutely nothing that shows that he was ever any kind of, like, great gunman or... Because he talks all these things about this is what you have to do, and it's not about drawing faster, it's just about, like, being like, calm. And just ends up getting gunned down almost, like, unceremoniously. Like, he does nothing at all. So, to me, it's that... Clint Eastwood is, Will, William Money is the only character in the movie that doesn't talk about his past necessarily. That won't talk about, this is what I did, and this is how many people I killed, and this is like how fast I was. He doesn't want anything to do with it. Right. And he's the only one that's actually capable of doing those things still. Whereas everyone else is so eager to like tell their tale and say like, oh, I was the best, and I was the fastest, and I was, you know, I made a name for myself in Abilene or whatever. Sure. And none of them can perform when it comes to actually being in that situation. So I think it's, I I think it's really like almost a condemnation of the glamorization of people being killers in the old West. And the idea that these men that were outlaws and bushwhackers and highwaymen, you know, were nothing to be romanticized or looked up to. They were just opportunists that had, you know, if it beat guys who pissed themselves in glasses, like writing stories about them and embellishing all the things that they did. So I, I think that's really like the point of the movie. Right? None of that stuff is romantic and murdering people is not like, a, you know, I mean, so. So, OK, so just for everybody's clear, it's like we've had a, some conversations about this movie um, off off air because uh, i made the mistake last night of bringing it up and mentioning how much um, I did not understand this movie right. upon rewatching it. Um, so that's where some of this is probably coming from. But so, so I thought about it a lot. Right. So even if I go with that idea, and I, I definitely agree that that's present like in the movie, um, I still think that he, that, that money is a hero at the end of that, like the way that they, I, I know you said off air, like about like some of the shots and stuff about him being looking sinister and stuff. Um, I see it as the hero triumphing over the egotistical, unfair, 
law enforcement of the town. He's a bully. Right, he's a bully. He's um, not enforcing real law. He's enforcing yeah. his own arbitrary laws sure. that allows him to remain. And and I agree with you even. Like I, I I mean little Bill's like he's not a good person. No. He's not. I mean like um and he and he's vain and he's egotistical. And you see that in him telling his stories. You also see it when the writer sits there and says that they should hang the person Yeah, they did the roof. They did the roof, yeah. you know, and you know yeah, um and, and the fact that it's like his final words are <laughs> is like I just built a house you know like this isn't fair. Right. This isn't fair. He's a whiner <laughs> on top of it right. in the end. Um, and I just see, like, you know, if, if that's who he's killing at the end, then it's justified. And if it's justified, then he's the hero again. He's he, Once again, Eastwood's the hero of this. So it's it's almost okay <laughs> that he committed but the only reason all of those murders all those years, and I still sit there and say that after he's riding away on town, like when he's in the thoroughfare, there's a scene of him close up, like you know, low angle with the American flag. with the American flag in the background, and I I I swear Eastwood so is still trying to play, play the hero in this. <laughs> here's a couple of things that I think about that. Um. He says repeatedly in the movie, whenever he actually talks about his past, that none of his actions were justified, right. and he barely remembers any of them because he was drunk. Before. Sure. The only reason his killings are justified at the end of the movie is because they murdered his friend. <coughs> Pardon me. And I don't even know if it makes it justified, because he has to get drunk again in order to get himself back into the position where he can even do that. Um, so the American flag thing I think is interesting. And my, this is maybe like a from left field like take on that. I wonder if there isn't some really subtle, maybe not even subtle is the right word, like really like almost misguided metaphor to America in World War II that like he's the sleeping giant that just wants to be left alone and wants to be isolated and that you've woken the sleeping giant and now like he's brought this destruction upon you and will bring this destruction back if you can't like learn to, you know, whatever. And it's like, it's really far fetched, but I was thinking about like, why else do you have the American flag there? and why else do you have him give the speech that he gives and why else do you have him go through like his, the sickness and the reawakening and, you know, because none of the killing in that movie is glamorized. Like, nothing in that movie is glamorized until the final shootout, when he's drunk again, when he becomes kind of the man with no name again. Sure. And is standing there and is all of a sudden, like, this almost mythical gunfighter. But it's a sacrificing, like, all of his ideals. And I'm, I'm just, I have this feeling that there's some some analogy that he's trying to make there with that American flag behind him that, you know, we are a country that has the capability for like terrible like things in us, you know, but are try to be like good people overall. But then when you force that, this thing into action, that it's going to be like catastrophic, you know, for the people that are pushing it. And Clint Eastwood is not a subtle man. No. Like he's not a subtle filmmaker at all. Um, I think that Clint Eastwood absolutely lacks the ability to cast himself in a role that is not ultimately, in his eyes, the protagonist of the movie. Um, 
we talked about this last night a little bit, I won't belabor it, but there's a movie from the 70s, I think, called The Eager Sanction, um, where Eastwood plays, like, an absolutely horrible person. And the way that he films that movie, you know, <clears throat> you know that he thinks he's the hero. Even though from, like, I can't even imagine in, like, a contemporaneous perspective, like, he could be viewed as a hero. But from a modern perspective, he's definitely a, a villain. And he's the hero of it. And I think it's just the way that he's... I, I think he's got a very... A very black and white perspective on what is right and justified and what is wrong. And that it's okay for someone to die for doing what was wrong. You know, because... Mm -hmm. Well, we've seen that in some of his other movies as well. I mean, so I don't know, and I, I, I think there, there has to be some kind of like, some sort of analogy that he's making there, like in that scene. And yeah. the only thing I can think is what I said it is, but that drawing that comparison, that parallel between like America and just how it is, and it's, it's violent, you know, birth and its history and letting it just go back to being like a peaceful thing that's capable of terrible things. I don't know. It's a terrible sentence. But... Um, yeah, I I don't know. I still don't get it. Like, I, it's like I, I, I don't... It's like it seems the, like most of the movie is criticizing the actions of the spaghetti western character, the man with no name, like that kind of person. And then he goes back to those actions, and that's the end. So is it okay. kind of also a criticism of you as the viewer? Because if, if you go – most people – maybe not – Want to see it? But many people that go into Unforgiven and see like, oh, it's Clint Eastwood Western. It's got Gene Hackman. It's got Morgan Freeman. And you think you're going to see the man with no name. Like that's what you feel. Mm-hmm. And the entire movie, it's like, nope, you're not seeing it. Nope, you're not going to see it. And even, like, the first time he has the chance to do it, which is when he gets beat up in the saloon, he gets his ass kicked. And it's embarrassing. And, it, like, sure. that scene, that might be maybe the most effective scene in the movie. Because you feel like this is a broken, beaten man that has nothing, like, all the mythology behind him isn't even true. So by the time that he, like, when he takes that first swig of whiskey, and again, it's like the clouds are rolling in, it's a low angle, he's got that steely man with no name, like, glint in his eye, and, you know, his set jaw, and he's got his, like, his hat on, <clears throat> and then he comes into town, and he walks in, and everything is Dutch angles and harsh lighting that are cast his face in, like, stark shadow, it's all profiles, it's all very... It's the only time in the movie where they, he really uses, like, quick cuts and, like, jumps around where you can't even really see what's happening. Like, those people die, and you never particularly see him shoot anybody because it almost makes him seem, like, supernatural in how he's moving. And it's the first time in the movie where you really feel, like, excited about what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the criticism of you, too, as, like, you know, the audience. So let me make sure I'm understanding this right. Like, it's going to be a really weird comparison, but hear me out. Like... So there's a scene in The Wire where, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, where Carcetti is um, giving his, like, at the end of season three, he's giving his speech about how they need to make sure that, you know, um, you know, because they're running that hamsterdam experiment, he knows about it, but it's like, and he gives this kind of anti-drug speech, 
and the camera just zooms in and in and in and you're captivated by it because it's so eloquent and like you know um it's so powerful like you know his his, uh, his kind of vitriol as he's like talking and the last line of it is you know you're staring defeat in the face right. and you as the viewer kind of realize like oh that's the filmmaker sitting there saying you're this this is the reason because you're taken in by somebody some asshole like this you're taken in by that and you're physically you know looking at defeat in, in the face right now is it something along those lines in the sense that like they're rope you're saying they're roping the viewer in sure. to want that violence and then you know here you go and it defeats the entire purpose of what the movie's been preaching Yes, and it's a criticism of you. Right. It's a criticism of the romanization of violence in cinema and our specific culture's love of... Again, like, and I, I think I think the way they portray, like, using the writer, I think, is really important because it's about how these men were portrayed and how we've romanticized them and held them to this, like, lofty ideal of like they're the man's man you know what i mean like john wayne is playing what every man should aspire to be sort like supposedly you know what i mean like stoic and strong and quick to act and always defends what's right and always sticks up for the innocent and the weak you know what i mean and like they do that with these people like you know wyatt earp and doc holliday and uh you know, like, all these, like, big, larger-than-life characters from the Old West that have become almost, like, like myths in our country. Like, that's our that's our folklore of our country as sure. people. And I think Eastwood's thing is that these were not, like, good men or great men. You know, these were murderers that sometimes just got lucky and sometimes just had somebody write things about them. And maybe the myth that you thought was there wasn't actually there. But Eastwood is an egomaniac, and so he is going to be the one at the end that proves that, okay, well... You know, my character was was the guy that could actually do all those things. Okay, <clears throat> I, I was gonna say that like I, that none of that fit in with Eastwood until you got to the very end, right? With what I know of Eastwood, I should say. Um, with, with what I know of Eastwood, none of that fit into until you got to the end that he's but, like, like that he's he, an egomaniac who. Um, but he allows himself to be humbled and beaten, yeah. right? Because until he's willing to pick up that mantle of being William Money again. Right. You know, he's just this sick old man that can't even get on a horse anymore. You know, they can't even shoot a pistol straight. But all of a sudden becomes the man with no name after like a quarter of a bottle of whiskey and the right motivation. I think it's a very interesting read on the whole thing. I think there's a number of things we could sit here and continue talking about reading into it and like, you know, theorizing about like, you know, what the meaning was behind all of it. Um, Ultimately, I think my point would be it's theorizing that is not because it's that deep or interesting, but because the movie is that confused in its message. Okay, that, that could be true. And like, and I, what I, I think ultimately, like, that's the end of it for me. Probably is because I don't think it's on my lack of understanding or, like, you know, my inability to, like, figure out, like, what the movie's about, I, you know, and this maybe this is ego, it's on the movie to me that the movie doesn't really quite, its message is confused in some ways. Um, so beyond that, my question is, 
What's good about this movie? <laughs> it's got it's it's beautifully filmed. Mm-hmm. Um, he even mentions like towards the end when he's recovered from his sickness, the money character um, about the high country and how beautiful it is and how he's never taken time to appreciate it. Um, I think the the vistas of the old west, the way it films like the plains and the mountains, is just it's it's brilliant cinematography. It's got several really fantastic performances in it. Um, Clint Eastwood is Clint Eastwood, you know, but um, I think Hackman does a really good job as this, like, swarmy, condescending, former, like, bandit. Um, Morgan Freeman just is Morgan Freeman again. Like, it, it's hard. To, as we've been doing this, Hackman's appeared a number of times so far on our podcast. Yeah, Hackman is honestly... And I'm, I'm starting to... I always appreciate Gene Hackman. I'm really starting to respect Gene Hackman as an actor. Like him, the further we go along. When you look at those actors from like the mid to late '60s through like the '80s and '90s, you have you know you have him, you have Kurt Russell, you have um, uh, James Brolin, you have um, who else is in there? Uh, Jeff Bridges. There's these number of guys that just have this huge range of things they can do. And characters they can play, and Hackman might actually be at the top of that list of a guy that can play almost any character type. Because Clint Eastwood, like, and I like, don't get me wrong, like, there's a lot of stuff I love about Clint Eastwood. Sure, but Clint Eastwood is never going to play anything but Clint Eastwood. Like, he's always it's like Jack Nicholson. Right? Nicholson post eighty seven. You know, yeah. Robert De Niro is always just going to be Robert which, De Niro. which is of Eastwick's turning point there. Yeah, but. Gene Hackman is the character that he is. You know, Gene Hackman in Get Shorty is completely different than Gene Hackman in The Conversation, which is entirely different from Little Bill in Unforgiven. Like, it's... Which is different from Royal Tenenbaum. Right. And, like, using, like, those bookends of his his career, you know, you just... You look at how many different... Like, Popeye Doyle Mm -hmm. is a wholly unique character. Yeah. From any other It doesn't even feel... Right. It doesn't even feel like the same person. So he's pretty amazing in it. Yeah. Um, I think the the prostitutes for as little as they're in the movie, and mm. they're in the movie like they're peppered throughout the movie. Yeah, I can't movie. remember her name. Um, Stro- what's it? Delilah Strawberry Alice. Strawberry um, Alice, the the woman that plays her. Yeah. I've seen her in tons of television right. and smaller the woman roles that plays in movies. Delilah is um, in a bunch of stuff from this time period. Is, yeah, she, she's in the crow. Okay, she plays the heroin addict mother that ends up like oh yeah of the girl. Yeah. Um. You know the, the the kid that plays the kid is good. Um, the guy that plays the writer does a good job. Yeah, I, I love yeah that he's he's a character actor that I love. So the the English kid. Bob, you know, character is really well done. Like you know, it's like that. That's a cut. There, there's really good scenes in the movie. I I feel like it does drag slightly in the middle, and even though it's only like two hours long, it feels yeah. longer. Yeah. Um. It's a really dark movie too, which is weird because yes. like almost everything takes place in the rain. Mm-hmm. Um, like all the major action or most of the major action takes place during like storms, which is odd. Um, I will always say that a good movie is good based just upon the narrative and the performance, right? And then if you have to start digging to find meaning in a movie that maybe it's not that great. So I think that that's why this, even though, you know, the Oscar nominations, the high praise from critics and audiences, that's why this is four and not higher than four. Sure. Because it's definitely 
has all these elements of a great movie, but I think it's kind of too flawed to be considered like yeah. a holy great movie. Siskel was one of the, I'm not I'm not going to go into hardly any criticism here. I think we covered a lot of things, but it's um Siskel was one of the only people that really gave this contemporaneously um, a really negative review. Um, he said it was uneasy, meandering, great looking, um, you know, and like he, he does have some nice things to say. Um, he likes some of the acting in and stuff like that. But overall, he said it was individual scenes work, but the movie seems overstuffed. For instance, why was the Harris, um, English Bob character necessary? Um, but overall, it was overstuffed and halting. Um, and I tend to agree with that. Like, honestly, after watching it, I was like, huh. Like, he put this on the top five list because it's like some of those movies you mentioned at the beginning of this. Like, I actually thought I thought you were going to. I thought the assassination of Jesse James or the assassination of um, Jesse James. Jesse James. I was, I was going to try to mess up on purpose. But um, mm-hmm. uh, um, I, I thought that would be on here, honestly. And but, again, I really yeah. like that movie. Yeah. But I. After rewatching this, it's like uh, there's good stuff about it. I like there's good stuff about it. So again, like, I completely understand the inclusion of the English Bob like, it makes perfect sense why it's there. Because it's giving you a hierarchy of badass. Like, English right. Bob is initially introduced as a badass. Sure. It's, like, humbled immediately by right. Little Bill, who's yeah. then this, like, ultimate badass. In your, in your reading, it makes perfect sense. <clears throat> that's uh, yeah. immediately humbled sure. by the guy that's the true. Understood. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, what would be interesting, if Clint Eastwood had, like, any, like, humility to him, is that he would have been murdered unceremoniously as he was leaving town. Which, when I first saw the movie, is what I thought was going to happen. When they draw that bead on him in the rain, the guy with the rifle, I thought he was going to get shot. And that was just yeah. going to be, like, <clears throat> no one is above whatever, like, death. I just noticed Jonathan Rosenbaum actually says about how dark it is. He says that um, uh, that the film seems at times to equate dark cinematography with artistry. <laughs> um <clears throat> Which I understand what he's saying. I don't. I think it's unfair for this movie. Um, I don't know. The first two minutes of that movie, you have no idea what's happening. The yeah. establishing shots yeah. in the rain, yeah. like it is so dark, yeah. so dark. And I don't even keep my TV like that dark. But I was like, I can't remember what's supposed to happen here when I was yeah. watching it this time. Yeah, I mean, I noticed it. Um, I noticed the dark scenes, and the reason I noticed it is because I watch most things on my iPad yeah. as I'm moving around the house, and um, when it's really dark, I can see all my finger smudges. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I definitely noticed it, like how dark the movie was. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think I think there's good elements about the movie. I think that um, I just think that it's a really confused message that it sends at the end, and even with your kind of interpretation explanation of it. Um, I don't know. I'm still just like not sold. Like it just seems like a once again an Eastwood vehicle yeah, for how great he is and how great his point of view is on the world. But I think it's important because Eastwood was the American cowboy sure. of the sixties, seventies, sure. and even into the eighties. And this is him almost like burying that character. Yeah. Even though he can't fully bury it because I don't think he can allow himself to do that. Yeah. It's more or less like to him, like the, I don't know, like the epilogue or the um, eulogy maybe for <clears throat> like the idea of like that romanization where like these are flawed, fallible, not, you know, worthy of admiration characters, you know. So that that's why I included it. Okay. I think that's an important one. All right. Well, let's move on to a movie that I actually like. Um, 
So number three on the list is The Proposition from 2005, directed by John Hillicote, uh, written by singer-songwriter Nick Cave. It's starring Guy Pearce, Danny Houston, Ray Winstone, and John Hurt. It has 85% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 85% also from audiences. Do you want to go ahead and tell us a little about, about this movie? Uh, so the movie opens with a gunfight between the Burns gang. Uh, led by Guy Pierce's character, Charlie Burns, and um, the police, <clears throat> led by the Ray Winstone character, Captain Stanley. Um, the Burns gang is basically wiped out during the gunfight, except for Charlie and his younger brother, Mikey. Um, Stanley offers Charlie a proposition, the title of the movie, that if he can bring his older brother, Arthur, if he can kill his older brother, Arthur, that they won't hang Mikey for the crimes that they committed in the past. Um, he's given nine days to go out into the Australian outback, kill his brother and come back or else they're going to hang Mikey. Um, Stanley is police captain of this small town in the outback, uh, lives with his wife, played by Emily Watson, um, has this feeling that he needs to civilize uh, Australia, basically, uh, which he mentioned several times. Um, so the movie is basically two different movies, which is Stanley dealing with basically an insurrection sort of of his own men, um, the demands of his superior, who's an, like an elitist British, uh, captain, I guess is what he is, or corporal maybe, um, trying to protect Mikey from being like wrongfully killed before he's allowed to have this proposition carry out. And Pierce going across the outback to find his brother, reunite with his gang, and then eventually, you know, leads to the culmination of the movie. Um, incredibly well-filmed movie. Uh, very taut pacing. Um, some great performances. Guy Pierce is really good in it. Um, John Hurt in a small role. Very good. Uh, Ray Winstone is fantastic as Captain Stanley. Yeah. Emily Watson, too. Mm -hmm. um, one of the I think more like underrated actresses of the past like 20 years does a great job as Mrs. Stanley. Um, very, very dirty, very, I don't know. Depressing isn't the right word, but it's, it's definitely a bleak. Yeah. It's a very bleak look at like frontier life. Um, it has a lot of the tropes of, traditional westerns in the sense that like there's a lot of really like Arthur Arthur Burns when you are introduced to him is incredibly well spoken and educated and comes off as being like this family oriented guy but he's really just a cold-blooded like ruthless killer um it actually one of the only westerns that does I think a really good job of examining how Aboriginal cultures are treated by colonizers um, in the sense of like how the Aborigines both on both sides, because there are some of them in the gangs and some that are working with the police and even some of them are like domestics, you know, how they're treated by these people and how these, you know, white colonizers view them. Um, really well written. Uh, it's got <clears throat> some incredibly like tense scenes to it. Ultimately, I think the message of the movie is that, like, leading a violent life leads to a violent death, sort of, and that there's no, there's no real victory in, like, 
leading a life of crime. Um, and maybe that's the message. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of... I, I think the, one of the primary themes is that violence begets violence. Yeah. And I, yeah. <clears throat> Which is a little, little maybe cliche, but I think the story itself still works extremely well. Uh, the sets are really well done. It feels like sort of like a desolate outpost, like trying to, I don't know, like maculate some sense of like civilization on the edge of like the wilderness, basically. Um, and the Burns Gang, Arthur's portion of the Burns Gang definitely embraces that. Almost, it's almost like a Hills Have Eyes vibe where they're mm-hmm. <clears throat> living in these rocks, like on the edge of like nowhere. Yeah. Like living this, <clears throat> I don't know, like very frontiers-esque life. Um, something really violent and it, it sort of embraces the violence of the acts, um, but doesn't glamorize it. Like it's never, right. it's never done in a way where it's cinematically, like aesthetically pleasing violence. Like it's very brutal violence that occurs and it happens quickly and it's very bloody. Um, also examines the morality. I think of like, the idea of people being like judge, jury, and executioner, and how you can't have someone that's everything in one, that there has to be like levels of due process. Um, so when they decide to kill Mikey, um, Stanley Superior makes a determination they're going to flog Mikey for his crimes, um, and they give him a hundred lashes, which is more than enough to kill the boy who seems like slightly autistic and definitely right. like. Yeah. Develop, developmentally challenged um, and it leads to his death um, which is what brings the Burns gang back anyway is to try and save him <clears throat> um, I don't know just it's it's a really well, that's a really interesting scene though too that's really hard to watch that scene because it's only 30 right I think they end up actually giving him um, yeah, they get up around 30 and then 20 right but it's like it's also when all the townspeople turn away from turn him. away and start walking away and leaving and then Mrs. Stanley ends up faints, right. um, and they just stop. You know, even the guy that's doing the lashing isn't—it doesn't want to go any further. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like the horror of actually seeing that played out is too much for people. Um, <clears throat> which is, yeah, it's a really well done scene. I can't remember what that—it's intercut with something. I can't remember what it is. I think something with Arthur and um, Charlie. It's the, it's the kids singing the Irish folk song. Right? Yes, that's what it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, no, that's a really good scene. Um, this is filled with a lot of really good scenes. Yes, yeah. um, really good performances, and and it's quick too. Like it moves at a brisk pace. Right, like hour forty two, I think, or something like it, that. It feels like it's over, like before it started almost. Like, yeah, you feel like it just ends, yeah. and it really does just kind of end. Um, so ultimately, uh, Arthur and a portion of the gang come back in and murder the police in the town and go into Captain Stanley's house. And uh, the younger kid that's part of their gang, the Irish kid, uh, starts to rape Stanley's wife. And Arthur beats and shoots Stanley. And Charlie Guy Pierce just comes in and it's just shoots the Irish kid in the head, shoots his brother in the gut. And then his brother goes out to die and watch the sunset while Arthur sits next to him and 
I mean, there's definitely, like, everybody pays for their, their sins mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, even Arthur, who doesn't end up, like, there's no resolution. You don't know what happens to him afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but still has had to, like, cause the death of his entire family. Um, right. Um, so, a couple of pieces of criticism. Um, first one is from Roger Moore from the Orlando Sentinel. Uh basically argues that, and this is the most common piece of criticism I, I probably read, is basically that there's nothing new in this movie, that it's that it's a lot of it's the same old stuff. He says that if you've never seen a head explode when a large caliber bullet hits it, never seen a lung puncturing spear wound healed by mud pack, it'll be novel. Not everyone's old enough to remember Sam Peckinpah. Clearly, Nick Cave is. Um, so how do you respond to the idea that, like, there's nothing new in this? I mean, if you're going to ever apply that argument, why would you watch movies at all? Like, just go back in time and set yourself an endpoint and watch nothing beyond that point. Like, it's interesting. It's a really weak criticism of it, and it completely fails to take into account how well it's directed, how good the performances are. You know, the cinematography of it, which is both beautiful and bleak, <clears throat> to take your word. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I think you can tell a story that's been told before and do it in a way that still is interesting and fresh. Um, I think there's also a lot of really small things in this movie, especially revolving around Emily Watson's um, character. Like, her getting ready for Christmas and ordering the ornaments and just this small interaction between a husband and wife are obviously very much in love you know her continuous obsession with her friend that was raped and murdered by the the burns gang <clears throat> where she can't get it out of her head that like what if that was me like what would she do if that was me and really great scene between the two of them where she's in the bath and yeah she's expressing like the sadness mm-hmm. you know that it led to this but like you know she can't get it out of her head um, her interactions with the townspeople after they find out that Stanley like allowed this proposition and they've all kind of turned on Stanley. Just these small like character moments with her that, you know, like we you mentioned it in Tombstone, the criticism was kind of this revisionist history of Westerns and how women were treated. And I think this is the prime example of how that can be done well in the mm-hmm. sense where She's not the main character. Yeah. She may not even be one of like the two or three main characters, but still this really powerful portrayal of what it means to be like just to live where you're not a gunfighter or a lawman yeah. or whatever. You're just a person like living there and the fear that you have and the uncertainty and you know, she's there because she loves her husband. I would argue that there's four main principles in this and it's Charlie, author, Captain Stanley, and Mrs. Stanley. Yeah, that's, like I, that's probably and true. it's those two pairings. It's Arthur and Charlie, and then Stanley yeah. um, and Mrs. Stanley. And that's that, that's and, a really astute point. And like, what is what does the family connection mean? Like, how right. far do you go to protect or to, you know, like stick it out for your family? Mm-hmm. And the way that they show those interactions. I mean, there's some really beautiful. The scene where Arthur and Charlie are sitting on top of the like Mesa, like looking out mm-hmm. at the Australian Outback. <clears throat> and Arthur's kind of trying to trick Charlie into admitting, because you get the feeling that Arthur knows that Charlie's there to kill him. Yeah. <clears throat> and getting to him admit, like, yeah. that, you know, because he keeps saying that Mike has, like, met this Irish right. woman 
and he keeps trying to trick him into like saying the wrong thing and he doesn't succeed and he knows like you know when when John Hurt who plays a bounty hunter in a small role um who Charlie bets like early on because he's drunk and then comes back and Arthur just kills him right and it's that's a really tense it is scene and very like uncomfortable in the sense that he kind of just like letting the guy bleed out and talking to him the whole time but even though he knows that Charlie's there to kill him, he's still willing to save Charlie's life mm-hmm. because of like the family right. connection. I mean, in this, I even it says, "I need to stop saving your life." I yeah. think at one point, yeah, because he knows deep down like what he's there for. So that I mean, that that criticism like completely glosses over just the fantastic mm-hmm. character moments and mm-hmm. you know, like and Peckinpah is actually a really interesting comparison because this is like the antithesis of Peckinpah. Like, Peckinpah is slow motion, almost fetishization of bullets entering people's bodies and showing people being shot to death from multiple angles in, like, all its gory detail. And this movie is... Quick. Quick. Like, you know, when when the, the lieutenant, like, the lecherous lieutenant gets killed by Arthur... It's just he stomps on his head and the guy's dead. I mean, that's sure. that's it. Like yeah. it's not the, the the yeah. It's graphic in the sense of like when you see like the one, um, I guess Aborigine that is like has his head blown off. Yeah, but it's like it cuts to black quickly to another scene. Before you even see the end of that, right. like I mean, it's um, because it's from Charlie's point of view, and so you just kind of see the head kind of explode, and then it cuts. Um, it's it's very quick. It, it's 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 quick violence, right. and yeah, it's not fetishized at all. Yeah, there, there there's no glorification right. of the violence yeah. here. The violence is just it's meant to be brutal. Yeah, it's it, it's something that's happening in this place and time, and it's yeah. just a part of these people's lives, but it's yeah. not necessarily. At least for Stanley and for Mrs. Stanley, it's not what defines them as people. But right. for the Burns, it's absolutely what defines mm-hmm. them as people. And it's ultimately why Charlie's able to turn on his former, you know, his brother and his former gang members and murder the two of them because he's got to try and stop. <clears throat> you know, they, 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 I think he even says, like, we can't continue on like this or something like that, mm-hmm. like to that extent towards the end of the movie. Yeah. And that's what it is, is like, you know, this is the attempt to, Bring civilization. Right, yeah. And that, that brings me to my next piece of criticism that I chose here is um comes from Michael Booth. Um not Booth. Um Michael mm-hmm. Booth from the, the Denver Post. He says that Nick Cave decided to pen a morality play from Australia's gritty frontier days, and the results are violent, uneven, and ultimately disappointing. I like a good gunfight, galloping horses, and terrified townspeople as much as the next bloke. But Cave and John Hillicote don't give us time to know their characters before bloody confrontations overwhelm the screen. Instead, Cave is trying to explore one of the basic themes of Westerns, the conflict between encroaching civilization and the crude outlaws of commerce and criminality that made such sentiment possible. Australians must grow tired of seeing the convict origins of their homeland dredged up again for art house movies. The Outback is a perfect place to film Westerns, and I'm all for more of them but it's high time they find a better theme. Um, so the piece that I really want to focus on there um, is um, 
the idea that the characterization isn't strong enough for you to kind of uh, feel impacted by the movie whatsoever. Um, I'll, I, one more thing that I just want to bring up, and I can't remember who, what reviewer now said this, but um, they were criticizing the Danny Houston Arthur character as being one of those, um, like, I think it was like fake poetry spitting villains um, and how like hackneyed and cliched that to some degree was like for villains, um, you know, anymore. And so given all of that, like, what are what's your feelings about the characterization? So I'll, I'll go backwards then mm -hmm. from your last point. Sure. Um, I actually think that this is a really clever rejection of that trope in a lot of mm -hmm. ways in that, like you have this, you look at something like, like Braveheart, right, where you have this warrior poet who's this educated, you know, well-spoken gentleman who's able to drop to levels of, like, absolute brutality when forced to. <clears throat> and they initially kind of portray Arthur in that way, where here's this almost like Brendan Bayhead-esque, like, gregarious poet you know, but he's a monster and he's not a good person. And the characterization there is no matter what trappings he tries to put upon himself by how he talks and, you know, his talk about how family is the most important thing, he's a brutal murderer that deserves to die. Like, in mo in many ways, that's some of the best characterization in the movie because when that character meets his end, there's nothing about him that you've liked where you feel like, oh, well, maybe there was some redeemable quality. Like, he's just... It's actually the best use of the villain spouting poet... Be, or villain, <laughs> poetry spouting villain because he's ultimately the villain. Like, there's no romanization of it. You know, whereas, like, people love, like, the Joker or whatever because the Joker says crazy things and, you know, is gregarious and even though he's a murderer like there's things you can find like cool about him or whatever i mean arthur burns is a terrible monster that just mm -hmm. is willing to shoot a man and allow his wife to be raped and deserves to be shot right i think there's tremendous characterization in both the stanleys like i think yes. that um ray winstone and what's her name watson do like a fantastic job like bringing like large levels of complexity to their relationship and themselves as characters. I think the only character that really shows little character growth is Guy Pierce. I mean, I Guy agree. Pierce is really just <clears throat> more or less the Dusex Machina in the film that's like propelling everything forward and ends, you know, I mean, he really, he's the little, little sullen, little emotion yeah. that he shows. I will say that even despite that, I think Pierce does a really good job of bringing an intensity to it. Sure. Despite the fact that he doesn't really have a lot going on. Because his whole character arc is his focus of trying to save his younger brother, who he right. knows is like, you know, like I said, developmentally challenged and yeah. doesn't, isn't able to take care of himself. Right. And ultimately, like, tried to save him from that life by removing him from the gang. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, even, like, the the minor characters, like the other police officers in the town. That um, lieutenant or whatever. The, is... the, the elitist corporal or whatever. Yeah. All, all those guys have just small things where maybe it's not, like, great character development, but it definitely is more complex than what a standard Western would give you. So... Yeah. And then, I mean, I can't speak to how the Australians feel about 
how the outback or the origins of Australia are portrayed. Well, I can tell you that it's like it's very similar to us. Like they call them bush rangers over there, right. but it's like um, while they were very much like what we called outlaws here, like the bush rangers um, were people that hold hold up in the mountains and would come down and rob people and kill people. But, you know, just like what happened with some of our outlaws, they eventually ended up gaining this kind of like notoriety where they became these kind of folk heroes. Very much the same thing happened with the Bush Rangers back then. So, uh, you know, the Newton boys or whatever, isn't that like yeah, a more mm-hmm. modern like telling of that same, I think, same I, idea? I think so, yeah. Um, and there were plenty of like, you know, gangs, like especially like brothers and, you know, that kind of stuff um, in Australia and stuff like that. And, um, it seems like that they've had their own history to deal with in the sense of like, you know, they were made to be heroes and then something, and then it came along where it's like, well, let's take a look, a more realistic approach to this and really look at who these people were. And, um, so I, um, I don't really get like that. It's like, they're, they're not that different from us in terms of how they've culturally right. dealt with those figures. So, um, I don't really understand that criticism. I mean, I know, I understand, like... I mean, Cave is, is criticizing that whole, like, rural Britannia yes. colonization feeling that, like, the British just deserve to make, to rule everything and make every decision. Sure. I mean, those characters... When they though, sing rural Britannia, like, you know, it's, um... It's like it's like a grotesque Hogarth, Hogarth painting or something. Right. Like you know, like it's not pleasant. Like it's not like a thing where it's like that's something to be cheered. Um, it's supposed to be looked at. Yeah. So in horror. I mean, Cave Cave is British, and I think that he is like condemning yeah. a lot of those things, sure. and I think he's like condemning violence and condemning. I mean, his whole like he's one of my favorite musicians. You know, I think he's maybe like one of the best like poets that makes music. Just in general. <clears throat> but his whole like obsession is with the idea of like the darkness of man, like overcoming that darkness and how sometimes you can't. And I don't know, like we don't get tired of westerns in this country. We don't get tired of movies about like you know, like plenty of movies that are hugely successful, like Gangs in New York, which is what, like right around this time too. Showing the brutal birth of like New York City right. and like that movie was critically lauded, but it's the same thing. Sure. I mean, you could say that we're tired of seeing the fact that except, Walsh for, except for not ran Tammany Hall, right. but it still sure. is interesting. Sure. You know, and if if it's done well, now if it's exploitive or if it's condescending or if it was yeah. done in a way to make the British seem like yeah. how it would have been done fifty years before, sure. where the British were right. And and, and one of the <laughs> things I write about the production of this movie is that they had. Um, uh, natives like that were consultants on the movie and I mean there's a couple of actors that are actually pretty famous over there like that are in this movie um, um, that are that, that starred in pretty big movies over there um, and, and they listened to them about how things were actually like during that time period and like you know trying to show a more nuanced view right. um, and so that they were actually represented and they listened to them like cave and Hillico like listened to like, you know, all their advice and like tried to make sure that they were portrayed well. So it's like, I think they're trying to get a pretty as accurate a view as a movie that a movie can get of this time period. I just think that, um, I see that whole thing, honestly, if 
Booth's trying to um, defend something that he doesn't understand. Right. Probably like most, I think a lot of reviewers do that anymore. Yeah, I mean, they're I, trying, I, they're being sensitive over an issue that probably doesn't need to be sensitive. About. It always feels like very personal. Like you're mm -hmm. not actually examining the merits of the film. You're just sort of like applying your own. I mean, I mean that's that's what a review is ultimately. Like, yeah, well, sure. That's what we do every sure. week. It is. It is. Yeah. Apply our personal feelings. Right. But I think that. I think you maybe personally disagree with the message or whatever and still appreciate, you know, the artistry and the aesthetics yeah. of the film. But I mean, like, I, I think like a claim like that, though, that's if you're going to put it down in print like that, it's like. Have you talked to anybody? Have you have you read an article? Right. Have you have you looked at a survey? Have you looked at, you know, yeah. have you looked at the history itself? I mean. I did, like, you know, I read, like, five articles on, like, Bushrangers, like, this week, you know, um, and, like, you know, their place in Australian history, because I found it interesting, um, you know, to read about that, and it's like, I don't know much about Australia outside of, you know, certain things, and so I read about that, and I got a pretty accurate, I think, read at least enough to talk about it, of, like, what that's like, and it's like... I, I don't know any of that shit, but let me tell you this. Like, I think it's a pretty effective condemnation of violence committed against people who are just trying to live a life. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I think that's exemplified to great effect by Emily Watson's character. Right? Sure. And I think I it's agree. brilliant the way that I agree. her dialogue... I really, think that they're, I really think they're the main characters in the movie. The Stanleys. Yeah. Like, I I really think that, like, they're, like, the, yeah, I mean, I they're the core of it. Like, I mean... I mean... Guy Pierce is the knight errant, and yeah. Arthur, Arthur Burns is the boogeyman, and yeah. they're basically just the backdrops for this family tale of life in the frontier. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. The only other thing I want to mention real quick is the music on this is really good. It is. Um, it's really effective. I can't, again, I can't remember where I saw it, like, I think it was actually a message board, but somebody said something about how, like, it sounds like the violin's, like, shredding your soul. Um, and I was like, yeah, I can see that. Like, you know, um, whoever did... I know Cave did the music, but he worked with the, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but it was the violinist, but um, it's a really effective score throughout this. It's, uh, it's It does all the right things it needs to. Is and, like, and the repetition of that one song that continuously tells the story of basically yeah. like... Yeah, Happy Land, it's called. Yeah, yeah the <laughs> like nature rejecting man, almost. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> Which is also like another sort of like sub, sub theme of this movie is the fact that these are people trying to civilize you know, a land that doesn't necessarily need to be civilized. Like, right. that's the, the conceit of the white man coming in and, like, bringing his civilization to a place that can just exist on its own without that civilization there. Right. So, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I, I saw this movie because I loved Nick Cave, and I saw that he had written a movie. And it was one of those things where <clears throat> this is when I was buying, like, probably, like, 10 or 12 DVDs a week. Yes. Um, and I just picked it up. You know, because I thought it looked cool, and I was yeah. like pretty blown away by how great it was. Yeah, and you gave it to me at that time, I remember. And um, yeah, I mean, it held up after ten yeah. plus ten plus years now. Like, yeah, and it's something else. Another ten years down the road, and fifteen years, I'll, as long as I'm here, I'll, I'll probably watch it again. Some point. And it's it's, it's a, a movie, movie that like I think you can enjoy just for what it is, and I think it's a movie that can lead you to question certain things and think about some pretty pretty dark like moral questions of humanity and i think it works on a lot of levels and yeah it's it's definitely a, a very solid very watchable film okay moving on to number two on the list so the most recent movie um out of all of these is uh, 2015 is called bone tomahawk 
Um, it is directed by S. Craig Zoller, uh, starring Kurt Russell, Richard Jenkins, Matthew Fox, Patrick Wilson. Uh, has a 91% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 73% from audiences. Um, do what you was the critic percentage? 91. Okay. Um, do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about this movie? Um, this is uh, it's the only one that I had never seen that was on this list. Um, and it might be the one I'm most impressed by, actually. So, so it's, again, like most of these movies, it's a pretty simple story. Um, two highwaymen run afoul of an indigenous tribe. Um, one is murdered, the other one escapes to this small town on the frontier of, it was like Oklahoma or something is where it takes place. I think so, yeah. Um, he ends up getting captured by the local sheriff um, for being, after acting suspicious, a uh, sheriff played by Kurt Russell. Um, over the course of the night, uh, he is murdered. The wife of Patrick Wilson, who's an injured cowboy, is kidnapped. Or no, he's not murdered. He, him and the wife are kidnapped. Um, a stable boy is murdered. And they have to form a posse to go and get the wife back. So Kurt Russell, Matthew Fox, Patrick Wilson, Richard Jenkins, all form a posse to go out into the hinterlands, this place where no one will travel to, where this tribe lives to get them back. And they end up running into this group, which is like this, I don't even know how to describe them, like monstrous troglodytes that live in these caves and are almost like pre-Cro-Magnon, just murderous cannibals, um, to ultimately save uh, Patrick Wilson's wife. Um, it's a pretty brutal movie. <laughs> um, some very, very effective scenes of violence um, starts a little slow uh, the first like maybe 35 minutes mm -hmm. where they see all like the build up and the exposition yeah. and getting them onto the open trail <clears throat> up until maybe the first night that they camp out <clears throat> it's really just building the characters and sort of like introducing their interactions and um, more or less building up Matthew Fox, in a lot of ways, is being this kind of, like, dandy frontiersman who's also, like, a guy that's murdered all kinds of Native Americans in the area. Um, and then once they get out and they start actually trying to, like, rescue the woman, it becomes, like, pretty brutal. Um, definitely turns a lot of conventions of the Western. It at least, like, plays with them in ways that are different, where... You know, these men are experienced, but they're not, like, heroes. They're not mythic. They're just people that are trying to, like, do the right thing. Um, it becomes a horror movie, really, like, halfway through. And a really effective horror movie with, like, a pretty unique setting. Um, there's some, again, like, I'll use the word brutal by, like, a dozen more times talking about this, but just the way that death is portrayed is incredibly visceral and graphic. Um... Pretty surprising a lot of times, like, and there's a couple scenes that go much further than I think you expect them to go when you first start seeing it, um, and also doesn't end the way that I don't think you would expect it to end, like, the people that that live through the movie are not the people I right. think that you would expect to live through the movie. Sure. Um, I, so... 
when I watched this, uh, what I had planned to do was it was like 1 a.m. I was going to watch an hour, go to bed, wake up the next day at some point and finish watching it. So I started watching it, and like you said, it's a little slow and uh, in that first 30 minutes. And uh, if the one critical note I'll make on it is I don't think some of that needs to be there. It doesn't build enough characterization for it to be there, and that's the only critical note like I really have on this movie. Once you get to them being out on the hunt, trying to find uh, the gentleman's wife, from that point on, like, and there's a scene with his hurt leg that happens. From that point on, I, I started watching, and then I just kept watching. Like, I didn't go to bed. Like, I was up till like you know after three, I think. You know, um, by the time I actually like probably finished this movie, and there's a scene when you talk about brutal. There's a scene in this movie that takes place with those troglodytes is what they call it. You know, that's the same word they use in the movie is troglodytes with these, um, with these like kind of, uh, cave dwelling monsters. Yeah. 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 Um, that are natives, you know, I mean like they're, 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 they're natives, you know, like there's some sort of, they're aboriginal, like, yeah. 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 Inhabitants sure. Of this land. Sure. Yeah. Um, they, it is so grotesque, like, in this one scene, particularly, like my, this, are you talking about putting the flask in the guts? No, no, I'm talking about the, the so they trapped, like they, they took the wife and they took one of the deputies. Oh, when they cut him in half. Yes. There's yeah. a scene where it's graphic. Like they sit there and they show the scalping and then they shove like a bone, like in his mouth and beat it in. And then turn him upside down and use a hatchet, like on yes. his, like basically, like you know, on his groin area, to like cut, like split, split him, him in, split him in half. Right. And they show you the entire thing. And I have not, for many years now, had my gut drop at a scene in a movie like that because one, I wasn't expecting it. Like I wasn't expecting the graphic nature of it. Like right. not for this movie, I wasn't expecting it. It's when the horror actually really starts. My stomach dropped. I felt almost like for the first time, and I don't know how nauseous at viewing something on a film. And um, from that point on, that movie becomes one of the tensest movies I've seen in a long time. Because now you've actually seen what the end is for these people, if it gets to that point. And like every little thing that happens from that point on as they try to get themselves out of that situation... Because, takes on like so much importance because you want to see them get out of this situation and it makes those you know cannibalistic you know like you know cave dwellers it makes them like actual villains more than anything i've seen in a long right. time um to where you want to see them die right like they they're monsters that deserve to die and um it, it's Samuel. <laughs> <laughs> and i um the last like half hour of this movie is absolutely incredible. I yeah, think. it is. Like, it's, it's pretty brilliant. And, and it really starts with that scene, as grotesque as it is. Like it, it created such a visceral reaction that it created an emotion for me to want to see those characters succeed and get out of that situation. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I, I absolutely love this movie. 
Like, yeah, it's really good. Um, so I found this movie because um, Craig Craig Zoller, right? Was that his name? Yeah. Um, I had read a book that he had written uh, called Race Race of the Broken Land. It's a novel in a similar vein. It's you know kind of like a like a modernist take on the Western genre. Um, and I found out that he had, you know, done this movie, so I, I watched it. Um, I was equally as impressed the first time I saw it. It was um, incredibly surprising to me, especially because, like, the title is just kind of silly. When you first hear it, like, Bone Tomahawk is, yeah. you know, just kind of like... When I was movie. drunk the other night, I think I kept wanting to call it Bone Hawk Tomahawk or <laughs> something like that. Somebody <laughs> called it Tom Bonehawk. <laughs> Tom. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but so... You're right, and it becomes an incredibly effective horror movie and then <clears throat> the last like 30, 40 minutes of that movie where you do want to see these guys escape because it's it's not even just like the abject violence that these cannibalistic like monsters are committing. It's the fact that they've removed their vocal cords and replaced it with like these bone windpipes kind of so that when they scream that it's this ulation that's like terrifying and piercing and chaotic and yeah. it's like a real life version of the predator or something. Right. And I mean that that's really what they're they're meant to be. Like yeah. he, so they they are like native inhabitants of this land, yeah. but they're more than just like they're prehistorical yeah. like murderers. They've, they're right. not there's they, no civilization. Right. They just they've never really come in contact with any real civilization. Yeah, they're just they're uh, to use like the predator analogy, which is yeah. perfect. They're just apex predators. Basically, yeah. I mean, it's like a mountain lion with the ability to like use a bow and arrow and yeah. craft weapons, and yeah. <clears throat> you know they're they're beaten basically by human intellect. Yeah, is sure what ends up like sure. ultimately killing them and the will of yeah. those people to survive. Um, oh, I forgot about the women in the right. Well, that, that, that's their, really their horrific limbs, too. Their limbs yeah, and their eyes sewn shut. And uh-huh. There's like breeding. Breeding. Yes. Yeah, it's terrible. It's I mean. awful. It's so awful. Like, uh, yeah. It's it's I. It's how I almost imagine the way that um we crossed up Serenity earlier, the way that uh they just dis- the Reavers yeah. that the way that they talk about the Reavers becoming inhuman. And like how they mutilate because you see like the one the guy that saw the Reavers ends up mutilating his face right. and everything, and it's like it reminds me of what I thought the Reavers would be like in in Firefly. Yeah. Um, I mean, because what it is is it's like again to my point from the proposition about Arthur Burns. There's nothing sympathetic about these villains. Like it's not traditional in that sense of the Western where you can see something human. It's an absolutely inhumane monstrous like threat that these people that you've come and so it's kind of like a counterpoint to what you said i think the opening slowness is important because even though there's not a huge amount of character development it still lets you learn the characters like you like you know kurt russell's sheriff and you like jenkins deputy and you even though he's kind of like brash and cocky like you kind of like matthew fox maybe the only person you don't really ever get to like 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 is you know, the Patrick Wilson character just because he's kind of dull, but at the same time, like, you appreciate his tenacity to go out with a broken leg to save his wife because he loves her so much. Mm-hmm. And seeing all that humanity, like, build up and actually do it almost like a traditional Western sense of, like, the posse riding out in the frontier 
and then flipping it around to become this incredibly tense, scary, well-filmed, like, horror movie is, it's, the juxtaposition, I think, is amazing, and I think it makes the end of that movie so much more effective because of what built up to it. Yeah. Um, Hit me with some criticism. Uh, well, among the top critics, there wasn't any. Um, so I had to start digging through other critics, um, which is a lot of, like, just, like, kind of people that are on Rotten Tomatoes, but personal websites, stuff like that. Sure. So, um, but one thing that became apparent throughout, and another reason why I hate doing, um, modern reviews is there was a lot of criticism about how the Native Americans were treated here, the the, the troglodytes, as we've been talking right. about, um, these inhuman monsters, uh, is the way the Native Americans were are viewed throughout this. Um, uh, like, so much uh, about it, and um, Nathaniel Hood here um, wrote, if Bone Tomahawk had straightened out its racial politics, I would have eagerly recommended it as a stark effect piece of filmmaking, um, which I just thought was really funny because it's like, oh, it's a great movie, except for, like, you know, there's this thing I don't like, and, right. um, you know, which I don't even know if that matters in this movie. But I, I think the movie actually speaks to that point, though, really, because early on when they're sort of developing the idea of forming this posse to go out and rescue her, there's a Native American character that's... Is the town scholar? Yeah, he, mm. he's a town scholar, lives in the town. Sure that says these creatures live here and they're not, you know, they're not, they use the term Indians, but they're not Indians. They're not any sort of tribe that anyone interacts with. So already establishes that Native Americans exist in this world and are normal people that live in society and have, like, value and contributions and are not any different than the white people around them, except that Matthew Fox, like, is a character that murdered a bunch of Native Americans. But... This is something else. Like, these are monsters that are living in the hills that you avoid this area because of how, like, brutal and awful it is. So it's it's completely glossing over the plot of a movie to hit your own, to get hits on a a blog or a website Mm -hmm. by claiming, like, racial bias or racial profiling. But, I mean, it's not... Yeah. it's, It's a horror movie. Like, you don't... Yeah, there's a guy, William Bibiani, um, who actually kind of counters some of this and says that mandatory is the website that he writes for. But uh, he says that on paper it seems downright offensive, you know, um, but he says that Zoller, like, you know, ends up pulling it off in the end because he mentions, like, you know, like the scholar of the town, like, right. you know, and he also talks about the role of women in this being... Uh, what does he say? Smart, resourceful, respected. He says the mayor of Bright Hope is a weak man. So when Sheriff Hunt needs something done, he speaks directly to the mayor's wife, um, ignoring the man of the title in the room completely. They they have this town doctor that's never even seen because Patrick Wilson's wife right. does all the doctor. Sure. And is immediately like, nobody even goes to him. Yeah. They, he's in his cups. We need your help mm-hmm. to like save this man who's been attacked. I mean, yeah. there's... There... It would be like arguing that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like, is an unfair portrayal of Texas, right? Because, like, these aren't characters, they're monsters. 
you know, the, the troglodytes are not ever shown to have any semblance of a civilization, really. I mean, they're just, like, beasts. And they're beasts that are trying to kill these people, and the people are, you know, kill them back. Like, I don't... I don't know. So there's this guy from um, a place called Cinema Crazed, Felix Vasquez. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read through. Like, it's it's very unorganized, like, this piece of writing. But, um... Mm, it's like so it's a, but it's a lot like all in like you know there's no there's not a lot to back any of this up so it's like it's all just a bunch of like supporting points just all in a row so um there's a lot of points to hit on and we'll just focus on what we want to um he says it's a slog to slit, sit through from beginning to end focusing on a slew of broad cliches all of whom have to do battle with one-dimensional villains that happen to be cannibal native americans you'd assume a movie with such potential for chaos and mayhem would make good use of the setting let alone the meaty cast it brings along with it, but Zoller really doesn't seem to have much to do with it. Doesn't seem to have much to do with his premise. Bone Tomahawk goes on for at least 20 minutes of exposition and meaningless filler before we ever get to the actual meat and potatoes in the narrative. Just when Zoller begins to reach momentum of the narrative and set events into the motion, he instead pads the running time even more, which keeps the pace sluggish and tiresome. Moments meant to invoke terror, such as the tribes popping out of the scenery to murder their prey, are just absolutely flat and seem to have no intention other than to shock. Director Zoller focuses more on brutality than he does injecting genuine excitement and terror. Every cast member in Bone Tomahawk looks bored, including Russell, who can play this type of role in sleep and doesn't really seem to be challenged by, much by the script. He's your basic sheriff character pushed into a more than ordinary circumstance we'd see god there's no comms here we'd see in your run-of-the-mill no hyphens either run-of-the-mill western film as for matthew fox he at least seems to be having fun doing his best impression of val kilmer's doc holiday bone tomahawk is just an awful film failing to break new ground and seemingly intent with being as dull and absolutely tedious western with a mild horror bent um <clears throat> So obviously, uh, Mr. Vasquez did not like this movie. Right, I mean that's cool. Um, sure, but um, I want to talk about the acting though, um, because he, he spends a whole paragraph, well, what constitutes paragraph for him on acting. Um, I think Russell is really strong in this movie. I think so too. Um, I don't think that he is like sleepwalking. No, I think that I he's don't. invested in the character. And I do too. Yeah. I think he's an I think he's an older man that thought that he had found like a measure of peace, like being a sheriff in a small town that doesn't want to do what he has to do, but is right. doing it because he's forced into it. Sure. I think that I mean I honestly I think that comparing Matthew Fox to Val Kilmer is a pretty apt comparison. Yeah. But I think it misses the point where I think that's almost like a parody of that character, yeah. where he's a guy that, that is like this like Bon Vivant gunslinger with this past but he's not this like mythic hero in the way that doc holiday is i mean he's just a man like that's the whole point is that these are just men he's the first one to go and honestly like one of the stronger characters the guy that actually survives the movie is richard jenkins, richard jenkins chicory yeah old man that's like on the verge of death it seems like and yeah. and it's crazy and a little crazy yeah and the patrick wilson character who's got a broken leg yeah I mean, and the woman, who is another thing that you would yeah. expect is like a, like if you were really just trying to shock, like right. you would have shown a rape scene or a sure, mutilation right, yeah, scene. Right, yeah, I mean, you would have used her sure. as a victim and she's right. never a victim in this movie. Right. Like yeah. it's, 
Patrick Wilson, I'm going to be honest, I, he was fine here. He's good here. Um, he's not somebody who's ever really impressed me like yeah, that I mean, much just, like, in general, he's but he's guy. fine here. Right. Like, um, um, but Richard Jenkins is the one that yeah. like was absolutely phenomenal on this. Like, um, I mean, he, he really is like, to me, like for the character is the really the driving force throughout all this. Like the idea that he just talks all the time and right. just needs to fill, fill the air because of the tension and, you know, um, and how the other characters act, relate to him is also really telling, I think. And they build characterization for other characters off of how they treat him. Um, and, yeah, I just thought that was a great character. And Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very well done. Very yeah. well acted. And, like, look, I'm okay with people not liking movies. Mm-hmm. Like, if you, sure. if something's not your cup of tea, yeah. it's not, you know. Yeah. There's plenty of things you could ask me to review that I would probably not be able to say many great things about just because I don't necessarily like it. But I also think that I can watch stuff that isn't my cup of tea and still evaluate it honestly. It's like a film, whether it works or not. And yeah, I I just, I I just like um, people to actually have, like we spend, we've been spending two hours roughly a week kind of breaking down these films, like, you know, into with, 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 kind of trying to provide evidence to right. support, like, you know, what we think about them, you know, particularly you, like, you know, going through, walking through scenes, like, that you liked, so that means this, or the camera angles that you think yeah. work for this, or whatever it is, and it's like, just the idea that it's, you know, you know, meaningless filler, it's like, you know, it's like, well, what's filler? Like, I can tell you what's filler in this, it's, it's pretty much, like, in the first 40 minutes, there's just a lot of talky scenes that take up time that you could have cut down by half in all of this and got them into the desert by the 25 minute mark. Like, you know, you know what's weird about the way that you and I do movies is that we, we've had the same conversation several times mm-hmm. in our films. Um, specifically, I'll bring up uh, Wolf Creek. When we both first saw Wolf Creek, sure. we had the same conversation yeah. where you hated the first part of Wolf Creek for the same exact reason. Yep that you think this movie is overly long in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that that I actually kind of like. Yeah, like, I thought, I think, like, majority of these movies, except for the proposition, um, I think majority of them have a, take, take to some degree. Yeah. I'm, I'm okay with it. Like, for some reason, there's something about the payoff being worth the buildup, where I can excuse the buildup a little bit. And I don't know what that is, but I don't... Like, if, if, I'm, if I'm bored... I'm not bored watching the meaning of Bone Tomahawk. I'm just anxious to get it. Like, okay, let's just, let's get rolling. And the longer you build that, to me, it's like building an anticipation of the action. Well, there there's things that like the or I don't know if we're experts. I don't think we are, but it's like we're we're pretty savvy moviegoers, and I think you can understand what I'm. I know you all understand what I'm saying here. Like, I've watched enough movies anymore to know what is meaningless and what's going to pay off. Like, you can tell, like, a lot of times by the way the line is delivered a lot of times and stuff like that, especially modern movies, I can tell. It's one of the reasons I don't really watch modern movies that much, but it's like, you know, I can can just tell, like, you know, oh, well, that's going to pay off probably in this way, or this is definitely going to pay off in Act 3. This is completely meaningless. And, you know, like, if it's establishing character... Like, the great movies, and this is unfair to compare some of these things to, like, the greatest movies, but it's like, I'll take something like Chinatown. It's like, you think about, like, every scene with Giddis 
like in the first like 15 minutes of that movie. Um, everything, everything that he says, everything that he does, everything that he, the way that he acts establishes that character. And you could sit there and say that like, oh, this is moving pretty slow. I mean, it, like, you can make that argument. It's like, oh, well, it takes a while to get gone. I don't think it does because everything that's there is building towards right. that characterization. Chinatown is going from the very beginning. To some, if you if you realize that it's all building character. What, what, once you finish watching that movie, you can look back over yeah. that movie and right. see that everything in that movie matters. Right. Well, it's okay. Well, let's take Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'll take one more example. <clears throat> okay. Is, you know, um, it's going immediately because it's like this adventure action sequence. Right. right? But does it really play in, other than establishing one of the minor villains? Only, only establishing Indiana as who he is. Right. And Belloc as who so he is. So the first 20 minutes of that movie, like including like all the stuff with him being back, uh, acting as a professor and meeting with the F CIA, like... Um, and all those kind of things, like everything in that matters. It matters to establish the tone of the movie, right. the character of Indiana Jones, the complexity of the character of Indiana Jones too. Um, you know, it builds the final scene basically of the movie, uh, which is a brilliant rewrite by Ford, um, not from Spielberg himself. Um, <clears throat> sorry, Kasdan, I guess like wrote the original draft um, uh, with Spielberg, but. Um, the, it pays off the idea that Indy has no faith, you know, like, I mean, like it has that built into it, like d during that conversation. So you get to see everything about it is showing you something about Indy Andrews and it's telling you the plot at the same time of like what the arc is. And like, you know, it's giving you the exposition inside of giving you the character, everything in those first 20 minutes actually matters to some degree. His fear of snakes just pops up and all that, right. like, you know, all of it matters. So let me do the same thing you just did, and I'll do it for Bone Tomahawk. Okay, go ahead. On. Sure. So the opening scene is um, the two highwaymen raiding the corpses of the people they've murdered, mm -hmm. treading into the land of these troglodytes, one of them getting killed, the other one escaping. Right. That matters, because that sets up sure. why... It's cold the, open. Yeah, go ahead. ...why the yeah. troglodytes have come sure. to that town. Yeah. Then... The highwayman comes to the town. You get introduced to every principal character mm -hmm. in the movie and some filler characters sure. at that point. But it's townspeople, you know. It's like building the sense that this is an actual community. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you get to learn that Kurt Russell and um, Chicory, you know, that the two characters have this <clears throat> cordial, almost like father-son relationship. Mm -hmm. You get to see Matthew Fox as this cold, kind of cool character mm -hmm. that still cares enough to help the town because he's a member of it. Sure. You get to see the love between the Patrick Wilson character and his wife. The most effective that, scene in the beginning, I thought. The fact that they have this great affection mm -hmm. and he's like quiet and a man of few words, but still is able to be like poetic towards her, mm -hmm. you know, when it matters. Then. Stable Boy gets murdered. They get taken. Right. Then you have another establishing scene, which you point out, you know, where you see that, like, the mayor's wife is the strong character. It's six or seven minutes where they're, like, talking about this is what we have to do. Mm -hmm. So that matters. Mm -hmm. Then they leave. Mm -hmm. And you see that Kurt Russell has enough, like, 
pull, like, he's respected enough that he can take the man's horses and just, like, go. And they can, like, you know, head out into the wilderness. Then it still builds on the whole idea that Matthew Fox is kind of this Lothario that maybe had designs on Patrick Wilson's wife at one Mm -hmm. point. Patrick Wilson's kind of, like, sort of like a dumb oaf in a lot of ways, and it builds that. He's, like, headstrong and focused because he can't stand out his... Like, he's got to save his wife to his own detriment. Chicory is a guy that's going to say, like, inappropriate things because mm-hmm. he gets nervous or he just feels like silence is, like, strong. uncomfortable. Kurt Russell's a guy that can, like, immediately quell any kind of disagreement because everyone respects him so much. That they're all capable, like, frontiersmen because they fend off the attack by, you know, the banditos in the middle mm-hmm. of the night. And then they're there. I mean, everything that happens, and maybe there's, maybe you can cut five, ten minutes out of that in like terms of That's what, my, my question was going to be, why is it 35 minutes? Like, like you, could, you could do it in, and, and look, I'm not any kind of master screenwriter, but it's like, you know, for the elements that you just described, it's like what I'm saying is, and this is why this is a really good movie, and it's not Chinatown. It's not Raiders of the Lost Ark because they, the screenwriters there, did it in 20, where it takes another movie to do it in 35. And, I, you know, it's... And, I, and that's all I'm saying is that, like, I just thought it was... A, I think a lot of these movies don't know how to establish so plot ask, and urgency and characterization all at the same time. Let me ask this question. Is it that they don't know how to or they don't trust you as the viewer to be able to understand <clears throat> With less, because that's what I might I, might <laughs> might explain why I don't watch a lot of modern movies anymore because you, they don't trust me enough as a viewer to um to handle it. One of my complaints about not really complaints, one of the things that I notice about a lot of modern cinema is that there's a whole lot more exposition than there is in classic cinema. There's things that are said very explicitly in modern movies. Agree. That. You know, to your point, like his fear of snakes, Indiana Jones, fear of snakes, Belloc's treachery, all these things that are built in that opening scene, that's one of the greatest action scenes, in my opinion, that's ever been filmed, that tell you that as a canny viewer of film, you say, oh, I recognize this. And then later, like, oh, I remember how this relates. Mm -hmm. I don't know that, number one, this is his first time director, I think. This is his first time. Sure, Absolutely. A guy that's a novelist that's writing and directing a movie for the first time. So maybe he doesn't, maybe he's not confident enough in his ability to write that for people to understand things just by seeing them, you know? But I really don't feel like it slogs. I mean, I'm, I'm, to me, like, I'm not bored because they do the cold open. I'm not bored. I'm and just they not. They set you up. And I'm, just then, not, I'm just not plussed. It's like action, pause, action, pause, and then. I think this is a really important conversation. It's it's been there, like underlying a lot of this. You're right, like a lot of different movies, like for a while. So I think it's important for us to like explain ourselves, with like why, especially why I have the opinions yeah. I do about the beginnings of movies. But um, just I so guess. you understand, this was my probably best movie. This this is my second out of these five movies. This is favorite movies, second one probably um, after the proposition. So, um, best best movie, it's probably still, like, probably third or something like that. Maybe, eh, I don't know. Uh, it would depend. Maybe second or third. But, um, 
So I still really like this movie it's a, a really lot. It's a really good movie. Sure. I absolutely agree. I, and there's very few flawless films. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you really want to sit and like pick apart... Again, to me, it's the entirety of the journey and how it ends that like influences how I feel about the overall product. Sure. More so than like... And there's plenty of movies that I love where I could sit there and say... Which okay, is why I glossed over it in a sentence rather than making a big deal. Right, I know. But I just... I, I like to think about it because that guy obviously feels he feels there's a lot more that's important there than what I think actually is like, you know, and I think it is probably like a first time. I, I first, I also think he's a novelist and I think they tend to be verbose. Sure. And you know, I mean right. the number of lines of dialogue you have on a page in a script is just, is, is just ex expanding that screenplay so much and the minutes that right. you have to spend on it. And I just think it's probably too, talking like in the beginning a little bit maybe a little bit but it doesn't bother me yeah it didn't really bother me that much either once i got into it yeah. um you know uh, anyway it's a fantastic movie. i agree if, yeah. if, if you can stomach some pretty graphic that, violence then you definitely should see it and it's free right now i think it's prime, so. yeah it is uh yeah it's free on prime um yeah that's free on prime the proposition is free on prime um and uh what yeah, the other two. Uh, Hulu, um, Tombstone's free on Hulu. Mm. Um, and then the next movie is free on Tubi, I think? Yes, it's a, yeah, um, yeah, the number one movie is free on Tubi. So let's go ahead and move on to that. Number one on your list is 2010's True Grit, uh, the kind of second adaptation of, of, the novel, of the novel by Joel and Ethan Cohen, starring Jeff Bridges, Matt Damon, Haley Steinfeld, and Josh Brolin. Um, has a 96% from critics uh, on Rotten Tomatoes and 85% from audiences. Um, you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much? Basic premise of True Grit in all of its iterations is a um, young girl has come to town after the death of her father who was murdered by a farman. Um, she's seeking to hire a bounty hunter to kill her father's murderer. Um, she succeeds in contracting uh, Rooster Cogburn, who's described as like the most brutal of the marshals that's willing to go out and like find these men. <clears throat> also, um, Labeef, this Texas Texas Ranger that's up trying to find the same man. Um, series of whatever like misadventures where they try and lose her. They end up going out as a threesome uh, into the territories to find her father's killer um they eventually do there's a whole bunch of stuff that we'll talk about like during the actual analysis of the movie um but there's a bond that's formed between her and her two <clears throat> bounty hunters that then become like protectors and like friends and father figures in a lot of ways um they end up <coughs> finding the man he ends up getting killed she ends up getting bit by a rattlesnake, and then there's a tense scene trying to get her back, you know, to save her from being from dying of the poison. Um, pretty amazing performance by uh, Stanfield. Is that how you say your last name? Steinfeld. 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 Yeah, at least Steinfeld. Um, maybe the best performance in the whole film. Mm. Like it is an incredible performance for like a young actor. Um, Bridges is really good, really effective as Rooster Cogburn, kind of straddling the line between 
drunken oath and almost like sage, I don't know, like veteran of the plains. Uh, Matt Damon does this fantastic job straddling the line between almost comic relief and actual like depth of emotion. Um, maybe not enough from, from Brolin uh, or Barry Pepper as the two like villains of the movie. Um, and when we talk about it, that'll probably be like yeah. my only criticism of the movie. Yeah. It's, it's um, one of mine. Again, I'm a sucker for these kind of vistas. Like I love the look of the West. I love the scrubland and the brush and the mountains and there's snow in this movie and you know, the, the cinematography is amazing. The Coens do a brilliant job with the way they, they light the scenes and they set the scenes and, how they use like long establishing shots and how they use like, close-ups and I think the dialogue is fantastic. I think it's got a lot of really clever, memorable interactions between characters. Um, again, Steinfeld is fantastic in her delivery. Um, she comes across as the most reasonable, mature intelligent member of like the entire posse yeah. and honestly in the whole movie mm-hmm. like maybe only like Matt like met by Barry Pepper who also like there's not enough of it but also seems like a similar like soul to her um just really like I it meets everything that I feel a western should be and is done in a way by two directors that I feel are like as close to masters of the craft that you can have in the modern age. Um, and tells a story that I really like. Like, I like the story of True Grit. I like Rooster Cogburn as a character. Um, I don't know, just almost almost perfect to me as a Western with only, like, a couple of minor, like, caveats that I feel we could, like, do better. But just a brilliant, brilliant movie to me. Before I get into my stuff, I'm going to go ahead and um, <clears throat> read you what Wesley Moore, so the Boston Globe writes. Um, if we did exclusively modern movies, I think Wesley Morris would become our um, Dave Kerr. Mm. Um, <clears throat> because I think I have not yet seen a, a, a Wesley Morris uh, positive review yet. Mm. Like, um, probably a small sample size, but still, I don't think I've seen one yet. Uh, he says he praises the performances. I mean, he's a fair guy. Like, uh, just joking, but um, he praises the performances, especially Steinfeld. Um, but he feels that the movie's um, unexciting and too too traditional. Um, he says the Coens, meanwhile, have declawed themselves. They're playing it straight. Carter Borwell's score is almost as sappy as Elmer Bornstein's original maple syrup to Mrs. Buttersworth. Um, and an urgent night ride on an ill-equipped horse might be the most grimly romantic sequence the brothers have ever shot, which is to say it's the only such shot. The sensationalistic wickedness of their most provocative work has, for one movie, been banished. This isn't a rousing movie as much as a reassurance. The brothers prove that they can play it straight, but they're preferred, for better or worse, at a sharp angle. Um, so he's criticizing really the um the idea that the cones are being safe in this movie and are not kind of leaning into those things that make them maybe eccentric or quirky or 
um, anything like that in their other films. Um, and right. He, and, he, and he makes it on it, and it makes it unexciting. You're adapting an novel, and yes. I don't know. I think there are plenty of like Cohen brother things in this. I. I think there's some really uncomfortable implications in the interaction between Labeef and, um, what is the Steinfeld character's name? Uh, oh, I forgot. Matty Ross. So, there's definitely some, like, uncomfortable implications early where he's basically like, I could have stolen a kiss, like, while you slept. Yes. And then, like, 20 minutes later, spanking her across his knee. I mean, it's very, like, sexualized towards, like, a 13-year-old girl. Um, you know, Cogburn is... Where John Wayne playing Rooster Cogburn is still just John Wayne. Like, Bridges' Cogburn is a murderer and a drunk and a man that's only really out for himself um, and is obviously, like, as a lawman, willing to lie about sequence of events just so he can justify the fact that he murdered people. Um, I mean, I think there's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a pretty straightforward story. Like, I it don't is. Know. I still think there's plenty of, like, that Coen Brothers-esque right. stuff in there. So, Maddie Ross and the guy that she's having the negotiation right. with I was just gonna say, at the beginning of that movie. Yeah, it's is amazing. The, sure, like, absolutely, and it's, and it's very Coen-esque. Um, I think Matt Damon does a lot of their type of humor in this subtly like where it's like he's come, trying to come off as this big badass texas stranger but then he's getting really hurt because he's so sensitive about like being right. talked down to by a young girl like is um and it's like that like hurt, like that hurt like that they sh that he shows is something that's very uh very much like the other Home brothers movies so i don't really see that um what i see more like it's not I posted on the Facebook page um, a few weeks back, like I, I linked to, I shared a um, YouTube video that was uh, called the, the Art of the Minor Character and it was looking at the way the Coen brothers, you know, make their minor characters memorable. That's one of the complaints I had about this out of the few complaints that I had. Um, I did not think the minor characters besides that guy that she's dealing with early on, I didn't think any other characters were very memorable besides the principals. Um, and I would and I would extend that to the to, to go into my other criticisms. Uh, so we can start talking about that. I would extend that to the villains as well. So only because they're maybe not they they both Barry Pepper and Roland both probably need one or two more scenes each to establish who they are. Because I think that Roland comes off as slow witted and also canny at the same time, like able to leverage people's underestimation of him because he's not bright into gaining advantage over them. Um, he definitely has the, the scene where he is going to kill her. He, it's menacing. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's tense. And he goes from being like this almost like affable, like, you know, oh, you shot me. Like, why'd you shoot me? You know, hey, I, I know who you are. Type mm -hmm. dumb hick kind of guy into this guy that really feels like he is a murderer and a cold-blooded killer. And unfortunately with the Pepper thing, you know, I 
I think that character is a character that I would like to have seen a little more because I think it would have been a more interesting character. Just his the whole like he just feels such thro- so thrown in. He is, and he it, it's more about the idea of him, you know, as um, the idea of him as the guy that. Is almost like this boogeyman of the territories that people view as a, I don't know, like not really Robin Hood, but I, I don't know how to say it, like like a Jesse James style like outlaw that has this loyal band and is uncapturable. And like I understand your complaint there, and you're right, like they're not as memorable as they probably should be, but they're also playing characters from a book, like they're not Coen Brothers characters. And the movie really is just about the three of them. Like, honestly, the two in the dugout, like the um, the nighttime scene when they go in and get the two other gang members that are yeah. all up, mm-hmm. they're more memorable as characters, and I think they do a good job. Mm-hmm. I think the outcome of that is memorable. I don't know if I would say the characters are memorable. I really like that scene, and I like I do, the, I do too, but I don't think it has anything to do necessarily with the characters. I the mean, bearded guy being like, you know, the... He's the wise guy that knows not to talk, and then the skittish, like, skinny guy who yeah. is afraid of death, you know, starts to, like, give it up. I don't know. Like, I... Yeah, I just, I, I just think, I didn't think a lot of those performances or characters, the way they were written, were very memorable whatsoever. I think the outcome, I thought that scene was very well done and very well executed. Yeah. But I think those actors themselves, I think it was just like, it was confident and it got it hit the right notes. Right. It got done when it had to be I mean, done. It's doing but it, what it needs to do. Right. But it's doing like the bare minimum to do it, is what would be my point. I don't think they're very memorable. I don't remember what either of those guys look like at this point. And I just watched it two days ago. So one guy's big um, and got a beard, and the other guy's skinny sure. and looks like a rat. Right. Yeah. You know what Barry Pepper looks like? And then the weird guy making animal noises, like the chubby dude with the facial hair that rides with him. Yeah, I, I honestly I kind of remember what Barry Pepper looks like. I remember more Josh Brolin's character and the way he looked in that. Which I um, I told you last night it's like Ethan Hawke before midnight. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like I again, I I don't. I love movies that are incredibly complex in the way that they deal with. And we've said this now. I feel like I'm repeating myself, but like I really enjoy like watching movies that make me think and make me question things, but I also, like, I'm okay with a movie that's just a straightforward story, mm-hmm. and if you have great performances in a movie that's well-filmed, beautiful to look at, I like the score in this movie, I don't have any problem Yeah, with I don't have a problem with that at all. I don't find no. it, like, saccharine or no, I whatever, I, I think it's pretty effective. Yeah. Um, right. I don't know, it's just, it, right. I, it, I really enjoy it. To me, it represents everything that's great about Westerns, and I feel like in the way that they portray the Maddie character, it's just being like the strongest member, yeah. like really the strongest character. It's in the best movie. part of the movie, man. Yeah, it's 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 pretty progressive in that sense. Sure. And yeah. I like so amazed by like, I I love Jeff Bridges in it. Like I think his sure. Rooster Cogburn is fantastic. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. I just yeah. No, it's it's. it's I just ultimately, it's, it's a really good movie. Like, you know, like, despite any criticism I have of it, it's a really good movie. I just think that those characters kind of come out of left field in the third act, the villains, and it's like you don't really have... Um, I think I said it the other night, but it was like, it's like if... Uh, it's like, you know, it's that Harry Lime thing in The Third Man where 
you know, you talk about Harry Lyme, you talk about Harry Lyme and like, you know, Wells joke that, you know, easiest role you, you ever have in your life is when they talk about you all the time and then you show up and everybody thinks you're brilliant. Um, and so I thought it was like a really easy role to knock out of the park here, whereas like you talk about Roland's character and talk about him and you talk about him and then he shows up and it's just so underwhelming. Like, you know, once he does show up, like, I just wish they would have spent more time if that was going to be the big climax is like him versus her and then Rooster versus, you know, Ned Pepper yeah. and like all of them. I just wish they would have built that up more. You know, what's funny about that, though, is that like Matty Ross never gives any kind of credence to Tom Jane. Like Matty Ross never, he's never built from her perspective as a man to be feared mm -hmm. or anyone worth any kind of estimation. Like, mm -hmm. he's an idiot and a coward and mm -hmm. a thief, and he's just someone that needs to die. <clears throat> she needs to see him come to justice. Sure. And so it almost would be like... Right, and I think that's the story they tell, which is like, he, is he does become menacing... And a threat, right? Because to her by the end, by herself, sure. Her, all of her blood because he is a coward, reality. right? Yeah, and yeah. and he is a coward, you know. I mean, and he's going to attack a young girl. So I think all that still works. Yeah. I don't think it doesn't work. I just wish we would have. I wish the ending of that movie actually, and this is like me, me. I don't. I don't think it's inconsistent with what I was just saying about the last movie when we tried that conversation. But it's like I actually wish the movie would have been a little longer towards the end in like the second half. Yeah. I wish they would have spent a little bit more time with her, with those villains, maybe, so you could see a little bit more of those characters and the inner workings and stuff like that. I can agree with that. I but, mean, again, it's it's a pretty straight adaptation of the, of sure, the book. So. Sure. But I, and like I said, I think my criticisms, like I said to you, are all fair. Is like I think my criticisms probably tend more towards the novel than it does the movie. Yeah. It's the story itself and like how much time you spend with those villains. Right, and for me, I'm okay with it. Yeah. I think your baby face can only be as good as your heel, and the heels here are kind of non-existent or weak, like, to some degree in terms of their characterization. Yeah. So it's like it doesn't give me as much to cheer for or root for as much, besides Steinfeld's fantastic performance, because she's wonderful. Yeah. 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 Okay. Right. Any final thoughts on any of these movies? Anything about them? No, I mean, I was... Um... I was pretty happy to watch them all again. Yeah. Uh, I enjoyed watching them all again. Sure. Um, just reminds me why, like, I love watching westerns. and It's honestly, like, next to horror, the genre I come back to most when I just have, like, an afternoon to kill and I want to watch something. So, like, it's something where I, like, I'll go to the western section of crime or whatever and find something that I haven't seen before and just watch it. That's interesting. That's a big difference between us because, like, I, I never seek them out ever like necessarily like that you, you pretty much somebody has to tell me like yeah. oh this is really good and I'll... i mean i'll do horror first and i scroll through horror yeah. and see if there's anything i want to watch right. and then i'll do western and sometimes like fantasy or action or something like mm -hmm. that um you know like i'll watch like a cheesy like old vietnam movie or something but i i i love westerns yeah okay all right so um remember everybody next week we will be doing the uh best of hitchcock um, as part of the Third Man series, and then two weeks after that, we will be doing the best horror, B horror movies of the year 1980 as we start our 10 month journey down um, the road of B horror movies. So excited. Um, so um, I am probably uh, less excited. Um, this, this is what I've been doing this podcast for. Is, is to get me to this moment? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, is to make you well, watch 
50 B-horror movies from the 1980s yeah. over the course of less than And, you know, I was the one that recommended this five top five movies of the 80s thing to you, too. Uh-huh. This, And then you turn it around all Right, because I started looking at the list, and I was like, oh, my God, there's like 12 in 1980 yeah. alone. How can I make this list? Worked myself into a shoot. Um, so... Um, Thanks for so listening. The, yes, thanks for listening. Um, and uh, please, anybody, like we say this every week, but um, if you have any feedback to give us, um, we would love to hear feedback um, on anything that you want to give us feedback on, positive or negative, we would take any of it. So um, thank you for listening and have a great weekend. Yeah, have a good night.